You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen. They're gonna come here, you know what they're gonna say? They're gonna look around and they're gonna go, oh, I hate That's some crazy motherfucking wallpaper. What is that? Jackson Pollock? No, Viejo. Those hoes are you. Got splattered all over his own wall. Now you might have combinations up to yin yang in the Bronx or New York or wherever the hell it is you're from, but this is Miami, pal, where you can't even tell the players without a program. Looks like you two are after the same man. Instead of beating up on each other, why don't you guys consider working together? It's called Justice Crockett. It's called vengeance, my friend, plain and simple. Because when it gets personal, it gets messy. And when it gets messy, the wrong people get killed. You're all players, Sonny. Who the fuck knows you? Well, my mommy and daddy know me. And we don't talk about who we work with. We didn't come down here to audition for business. Business auditions for us. And knows all about us before they call Nicholas. That way we don't waste our gas. For our motherfucking time. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and at the end of each episode along with our honorary Sleezoids that you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Next week, we're talking about artists and death. And my favorite part, they're really short movies. So uh, join that sleaze. <laughs> we decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we are uh, a- approaching five full years of bonus Crazy. episodes. There's like 110, 120 plus, as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre films, which we did one not that long ago, just on what, like Nope and Mad God mm-hmm. and this uh, Hong ones. Kong serial killer film called Limbo. So if you haven't made the jump yet, yet patreon.com slash slezoids podcast and uh speaking of which uh we had a lot of people make the jump this week yeah. now partially it's because we took a little bit of time off to do some some touring and some vacationing on our end but <laughs> this right. is going to be one of the longest lists i think i've ever read so i'm going to try and speed round this right now we have uh <laughs> sergio zechui we have charlie taylor we have gabe Curran, uh, we had Daniel Olson, we had Dustin Ponder, we had Bryce Snyder, we had Brendan Estevez upgrade from $5 a month to $10 a month and join us for the monthly virtual screening, which we typically do on the last Thursday of every month, you know, give or take whenever Jamie and I have something going on. Uh, <laughs> but we've been having a lot of people signing up and joining us for the virtual screenings. They're a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. um, we had a ZX Spectrum sign up we had adrian sign up uh ezekiah bates we had eli holmey uh lp uh nick longo dylan mum logan kirk uh big dick jeffrey (laughs) (laughs) welcome big dick um uh, vhs and vinyl uh andrew a herzing uh ce jake haywood tyler elliot spielsbury Michael Louis Adams. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. This is just going to keep going. This is a great problem to have, but Brady Childs, <laughs> um, Stephen Klein, Rory Kingen. We're still in July right now. Mark Carpenter, uh, Mikey, Mikey McNugget, <laughs> Matthew Dittersdorf. I'm sorry if that's your real name and I just laughed at it. Um, <laughs> no Fear t-shirt. And we are still going. 
I'm, I'm just scrolling. Sorry. Uh, Jesus Sanchez, uh, Mike Rezinger, David Beerling, uh, Dillard's Department, Weston Clark, Alex Glass, Connor Meehan, um, Riley Oman, uh, Donkey Boy, <laughs> <laughs> Jacob Greenham, Max D, Mark uh, Kansteiner, Austin Sternberg, Jeffrey Reining, Eric. Alec Juvelli, uh, Reed Sweat, John Allen, and last but not least, Hunter Price. So thanks so much to all of you folks. That's what happens when, Jamie, I take a month off from recording the show. But thanks so much to all of you. Yeah, thank you very uh, we much. We appreciate that a lot, and the support helps us a lot. And I uh, hope you're enjoying all of those bonus episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is um, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you are listening on either one of those platforms, you can rate and review the show. So scroll down to the bottom or scroll wherever you need to and give us a good old rating and review down there if you haven't yet because it helps us uh, climb the ranks over at those platforms and find new listeners. Spread the word. Get Sleezoid's uh, fever going. Yes. Um, and then the very last plug, as always, is merch. If you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the podcast, you can get that basically put on anything that you can think of. And you guys have thought of a lot of things, books, pillows, hoodies, posters, uh, pens, anything that is in the link in the description of this episode, as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com. And that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host. Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I think, uh, if my math is correct here, two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks would have heard from us, and we would have had special guest uh, uh, Hessa. Also yeah. known as uh, Zero Suit Camus over from the Seeking Derangements podcast. Or a Claire Penis. Or Claire Penis, <laughs> depending on whichever, whichever uh, alter ego on the internet you know her by. She always brings us uh, very difficult and disturbing films in one way or another. And she did not disappoint two weeks ago where she had us talking about uh, transgressive girl boss Italian women <laughs> filmmakers doing World War II films and very, very disturbing art house World War II films. We had Seven Beauties. Um, from 1975 and the skin from 1981 each one taking a look at uh either the holocaust or italian complicity in fascism and rendering that in very very uh disturbing detail we will say involving all kinds of violence and sexual violence and uh, gore and cynicism so if that interests you at all that was over on the main feed two weeks ago and we had a really great discussion with Essa. And if you just are interested in seeing a tank run over a man, um, yeah, with extreme detail, vivid detail. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that was over on the uh, main feed two weeks ago. And then uh, a bit of a, a, a bit of a left turn from that subject matter. <laughs> we had your patron voted episode last week, exclusive over on the Patreon, which I'm sure most people know by now, but once every two months we have all of you vote on an episode that we are going to do, we have you nominate a bunch of double features and then upvote the most uh, the double features you you guys like the most. And then we have you vote in a poll on which one we actually cover. And last week, you all had us cover one risky business from 1983 starring Tom Cruise, directed by Paul Brickman and Martin Scorsese's After Hours from 1985. We were talking about 80s horny, horny dudes. Y- 
yuppies operating in the sort of nightlife dream worlds of their respective ones where you have risky business has more of this uh, uh, MTV sort of teen sex satire kind of quality to it. Um, whereas After Hours has more of this uh, Kafka-esque, uh, <laughs> more masochistic yeah. kind of uh, tone to it. But uh, we had a lot of fun breaking those down and that was nominated by our patron Nick Ferguson, who I believe is our patron <laughs> who has won the most times now. He has won at least four of our double feature votes. So unbelievable champion. Yep. He's got the rings. Uh, But it was also a really great setup I found for because it just this just seems to keep happening to us where every Mm -hmm. once in a while we do an episode and just perfectly lines up because Risky Business, speaking of sort of MTV aesthetics, also having the uh, the in the air tonight needle drop. Uh, that even predates the one we're going to be talking the very iconic one that we are going to be talking about today. But to introduce that, we have a very special guest uh, joining us this week. He is the uh, host of the Not A Cast podcast, and that is Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. Emmett, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming. I'm bringing on two of the coolest appreciate- movies like ever made. <laughs> The vibe does not that get better than this, and I appreciate you breaking your rules for me. I know you don't usually go into the 21st century. Yeah. I know we 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 typically do not, but every once in a while, there's just something too good to resist. And it's funny because Emmett, there was you know for a while, I was definitely considering having you on at some point, and I just figured you know I just because you know, I try to I guess I just naturally pigeonhole people. I said, well, Emmett, <laughs> I'm sure he's got some great fantasy stuff that he would bring on, considering the podcast that he does. <laughs> and uh, you could not have picked something more of the opposite of what I would have expected from you. So, Emmett, what are we talking about this week, and why did you pair these films together? Well, we are talking about Miami Vice times two this week. We're talking about the the pilot to the show of Miami Vice and then the movie adaptation that came out, God, like 15, 16 years ago now. Yeah, it's been that and, long. Damn. And I was not, I cannot claim to be an early adopter of either of these things. I don't know about you two, but I didn't see the movie in the theaters and I stayed away from the show for a long time just because of its kind of surface reputation. Yeah, Josh actually introduced and, it to me. Uh, and I, I mm-hmm. had heard about the kind of like pan that it got a little bit. So I, I, I probably did stay away from it, oddly enough, at the time. Most people did. I don't, th- I don't think you guys are uh, uh, behind on anything. For me personally, I was, t- uh, pers- I, mean, I guess, I don't know if Jamie and I ever admit our age on the show. I was probably <laughs> too young to watch the film in, in theaters. I would have been yeah, I guess, 12 years old when that came out. I don't yeah, even I think I would have known what Miami Vice was. <laughs> yeah, that probably would have just been out of my, <laughs> my, uh, my, um, my taste at the time when, and yeah, I guess but at very 14, early I on, very early on, I got into the sort of cult of Michael Mann, we will call it. Um, mm-hmm. And it was definitely a sort of a huge adopter for me and, you know, figuring out that, Hey, there's a, there's, there's someone behind the camera. There's someone choosing these shots. These shots mean things. Right. <laughs> and so for, it was one of definitely one of my gateway filmmakers into thinking that way. And so when I, I was very, very prepared for Miami Vice when I eventually did it, having seen all of his stuff. And so around the time that I was in film school, I want to say probably 2013-ish was the first time I watched it. And immediately I lo- was like, what the hell is this? This is incredible. How have I never seen another movie that looks like this? Yeah. And yeah. So and then that was actually when what sent me back to the show. And then I enjoyed the show, too, for completely different reasons, which we'll get into. (laughs) But like, you know, these these two things, despite sharing a name, could not be 
stylistically different or representative of two completely different eras, not let alone styles. Um, obviously, both take on the dangerous world of narco trafficking and both have these very intense and brooding and kind of in their own way, lyrical depictions of the kind of people and psychologies necessary to operate in a world like that. So one, we have yeah. brother's keeper, which is the pilot to the show, which was eventually, you know, two episodes that were cut together and made into a TV movie. And, you know, so we have the hugely popular eighties MTV cops rendition of this subject matter. <laughs> and then we're going to follow that up with a discussion finally of, what is personally just one of my all-time, you know, sort of favorite and formative films, uh, Michael Mann's direct adaptation of his own material, this very, uh, very radical and largely rejected 2006 departure into the same <laughs> idea, but through insane hyper-digital immediacy, the likes of which no one had seen, and honestly, no one has really even tried to replicate since yeah. in a lot of ways, so... It's a hard movie to describe in a lot of ways, try as we might and will. Yes. And yeah. yeah I, I had the same experience uh, going through the cult of Michael Mann, the initiation rites and the robes and the sacrifices and everything they make you do <laughs> to join up with Michael Mann. And uh, yeah, I saw Heat and loved Thief and Manhunter and then started hearing about this movie. And I was resistant because of the brand that I'd never been attached to. But everything I heard about it made me sound like I would love it. And that it was, like you said, it was just like nothing else. And I still have that experience coming back to rewatch it now. They're really, I really wish every movie at this budget level or near this budget level looked like this and they just don't. It's too bad. Yeah. 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 So we will, we will definitely get into the history on what happened there, why man moved into this direction with, uh, with, you know, which was a huge departure from obviously the hugely popular style at the time. Like I think people in 2006 were like, Hey, we're going to get a throwback to like eighties cocaine action. Let's get it. And you know, <laughs> and that like, just didn't everybody's happen. Sad. <laughs> yes. Yes. So we will get into all of the history of that, but I think we should just jump right into it here and we should start with where this all began. Miami vice brothers keeper, 1984. Let's jump in. All right, we are talking Brothers Keeper, the pilot episode slash TV movie uh, of the uh, stylish American crime procedural drama series Miami Vice. This episode directed by one Thomas Carter and written by the head writer and one of the main executive producers, Anthony Yurkovich, and obviously executive produced by... Michael Mann and also, as he calls it, executive directed, because at this point <laughs> in TV history, executive producers and uh, as they, they would later call them now, showrunners had basically more power than even a lot of writers and directors on their own shows. But we'll get into all of that. The show stars um, and this pilot stars Don Johnson and uh, Philip Michael Thomas as the sort of unlikely Miami and New York narcotics detectives who had uh, five seasons of adventures. Go fast boating, gunfighting, 
and having sex uh, all the way through till the end of the 80s, where, spoiler alert, they realize that uh, cop work is pretty shitty. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And the origins of this show and of this pilot uh, are a bit different based on uh, who you ask. The head of NBC will say that he conceived it because all heads of networks love to say that they conceived it. And uh, the legend is that he, on a cocktail napkin, he wrote to another executive, MTV Cops, underline. That was it. That was the pitch. That was the idea. And they found Yurkovich, um, who was hot off writing this show in the 70s called Starsky and Hutch that people might be familiar with. Um, he claims to have conceived the idea uh, just due to his own procedural interests in the narcotics division of law enforcement and asset forfeiture in, in, in South Florida. And it just made sense for that to be a sort of na- it's very naturally beautiful, stylish place to put a cop show. So he's like, why not do that? And then you have Michael Mann, who joined the mix with Yurkovich, who was coming off of his debut feature film uh, Thief, or I guess also Jericho Mile, if you count TV movies, which now I guess since we're covering one, I guess we do have to count. <laughs> we do have to count (laughs) on this show um and uh, michael mann obviously saw his own way of being able to transpose some of his own stylistic interests into a bit of a slickier or a sort of a slicker poppier commercial Mm -hmm. package and i'm sure most people on this show and including the people i'm talking to today we're all familiar with michael mann but for anyone out there if there's one person out there who's somehow listening to the show and hasn't listened to our episode on thief or heat or manhunter i don't know what you're doing please go back and listen to those episodes um but man's whole deal and what he transposed into this show was obviously, you know, he has a lot of authentic, realistic, sort of journalistic research into, you know, crime and sort of the dehumanizing experience of, of systems. You know, Thief and Jericho Mile especially looked a lot at sort of prison and rehabilitation and labor. He has a focus on real criminals. But the style, um, you know, despite the sort of professional pragmatism and craft and skill of his characters, it's all very sort of, uh, you know, there's a lot of focus on light and architecture and mood, very doomed mm-hmm. fatalistic and abstract existentialism more common in sort of European crime cinema like Jean-Pierre Melville who is someone we almost I think when we were talking with Emmett we almost did a, a Melville episode as well with man because that's just an, another sort of natural branching off point from him but needless yeah, to say he made very sad deglamorized crime movies um, in some ways but then stylishly heightened them with real sensitivity and psychology for his characters and their emotional inner worlds. And that was what they wanted to do ultimately with the cop crime procedural on TV. Yeah. Like something I found interesting right away was, was those, like there was kind of two clone uh, tones that you would think would clash, but don't like, you know, you're talking about the, the kind of almost romantic stylization, but then at the same time, he's opening up with um, like three guys walking down a a sidewalk with one having a boon box and then like instantly, you know, takes out a knife and threatens um, uh, uh, Rico. Um, And uh, it it just, it kind of reminded me um, like of Death Wish or something uh, in, in that moment. But then you still have all of this like romantic stylization and, and then, of course, we'll eventually get to the alligator and stuff like that. There's still hints of comedy. And uh, and yeah, I just mm-hmm. found that very interesting. It's that weird mix of, of gritty realism, but also the more poetic dreamlike stuff. That yeah. makes his, again, some of his movies really hard to describe because like you can break down the plot of 
thief or heat or manhunter in a very procedural way. And your guys' episodes captured it really well where that's not really what it feels like watching them though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It feels like you're you're inside someone's head or they're kind of you're kind of watching someone break down on screen, even though their their jobs are like the furthest thing possible from being dreamlike. They're very goal oriented and task oriented. And you see that here that even though this is about guys doing their jobs, it feels like they're thinking about a dozen other things while they're doing it and they're constantly drifting off, which the movie also does a lot Yep, of people mm-hmm. just kind of getting sick of their jobs and focusing on anything else. And yeah, I love that because there's that grounded aspect like you see early on in this when you're a lot of shots of people, you know, racking their guns and moving very carefully and watching each other. But then there's just like, you know, steam coming up off the street and you get like like in the opening shot of Thief, the street lights reflected uh, in water. And it's just it's a it's a great mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's both it's both hardened and tough in a way that people like their crime cinema to be, but also very, very in a way that he just can't help. Very romantically expressionist. And yeah, basically sensitive. Thief was. <laughs> It was an artistic statement of where he was going to go. And, you know, obviously I'd recommend going back and listening to our episodes on Thief and Manhunter to kind of, you know, where he developed that style, because, you know, this is obviously not directed by him or written by him. And the reason we have to be so upfront about how much we're talking about him is because how much it very clearly owes to his style. And man, again, did everything on this pilot. And uh, I think the first two seasons of this show before Dick Wolf took over, where he was hiring the writers and directors, he was scouting locations himself, uh, himself. He was, you know, working on costume and production design and music selection. Um, you know, the they even talk about, you know, how a lot of the production designers and costume designers would go to him and be like, yeah, you know, he, he has all these rules about, you know, the colors and stuff. I think one of them was no earth tones was something that he said because he wanted this to feel like a, just a completely slick, almost unnatural world in the way of how, you know, you sort of have these, uh, a bright, colorful sort of art deco, pristine, uh, world of like linen suits and Ferraris and sunglasses and Versace and Rolex and clubs yeah. and pastel surfaces everywhere. Um, which is definitely sort of something that he conceived of like, you know, this is the very, uh, lavish, but very sort of hollow and kind of shallow, you know, uh, way that we have funneled money, this flow of money, this monument to the flow of money that is, <laughs> you know, served by a much darker and, um, you know, disturbing, violent underbelly that's beneath it, which was actually that material was a lot shot more in in the actual South Florida, which apparently they had no issue shooting in at all because they said that, yeah, basically due to crime and poverty, there was nobody living there that they could shoot all of like all the stuff where they do the stuff on like the docks and all the stuff where they have like, uh, you know, uh, meats under the underpasses and stuff. They were like there was they could just shoot that stuff guerrilla style pretty much because there was oh, just wow. nobody ever, ever there. Um, but yeah, so essentially what happened here was they took what was, you know, going to be a police procedural about detectives in Miami combating drug cartels and various forms of drug and human and firearm trafficking all ripped from contemporary headlines. Um, 
while also basically having those characters get so deep into their jobs and fabricated identities and pursuit of criminals that it ends up being very detrimental to their emotional lives and family lives and honestly just who they are in general uh, with regard to the actual minute logistics of undercover work and the paranoia of it and the betrayal and that that kind of aspect there became this quality of like sort of palpable existentialism to it and sort of brooding romance and it was drawn in typical 1984 fashion very very new wavy mtv pop rock dream world kind of stuff which is why i thought it was awesome that we talked about risky business last week because very a film very much owes uh, a lot to the same stylization definitely definitely there's like i love um one of the the shots uh where it's, uh, well, I guess it's Raphael at the time, um, but he's chasing, um, I believe it's um, Calderon. Is that who I believe it is? Yeah, uh, sorry, this is, is this this the the opening scene when he's on like the New York mafia stakeout? Yeah, yeah, and right when uh, he exits the club, and we can get to some of that because I really enjoy that too, but I just loved the that shot of the, the streets. Like, you can see all the reflections of the lights and all the puddles and the trash is everywhere um, as he's, like, yeah, running up and down. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely reminded me of that. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's it's beautiful even when there's something like, you know, just trash everywhere on the ground and kind of like the, the dirty streets every, every once in a while. Yeah, I, lo- I love how like silhouetted that stuff is and how yes. wordless it is because we, we are in th- th- this cold open to this to know to this show is just Rico uh, going by Raphael, which is the name we'll get it get to is the name of his dead brother who has been killed by this uh, New York Mafia member Calderon. Um, and but the way that we're introduced to that is this completely wordless se- sequence of just like the ambience of sirens and like him sipping his coffee and these mm. punks coming up to basically like mug him very death wish style until they <laughs> see that he has a sawed off shotgun in his trench coat that he's holding there. So we know this guy immediately, you know, he means business and he's intense and he's serious and he's watching this guy. But that's the first thing we get. Like he just looks like a guy who's sitting in his car about to get mugged. And then the power dynamic switches on that image. And then he, you know, he's, he's more dangerous to us as a character. He goes into the club, the music and the lights and these really beautiful, like long takes and tracking shots. And it's really important to know this was like a watershed moment for, cinematic stylings on television i don't yeah, think i was gonna people, say i don't think i've ever seen anything in this age when i've watched television that looks like this i i was amazed at how just crisp and incredible it looked the entire runtime yeah i mean there's there's some ups and downs through the seasons okay. um but, but but for the most part this set the model for right. what it was that filmmakers were like what they were allowed to play with and actually at the time it was very heavily criticized for being too beautifully photographed like it was accused <laughs> of relying on style and tone and music to mm. sell things that maybe weren't there in the writing um but i obviously i would argue that you know man's entire thing is you know creating these insanely well-researched and detailed words uh, worlds but then letting the vibe actually speak for itself you know like yeah. like for example one of my favorite examples of this which we'll get to when we talk about Miami Vice a little bit but on the collateral commentary on the blu-ray 
one of my favorite commentaries to listen to because he spends a half of it talking about um, uh, Vincent Collateral. That's his name, right? Uh, Vincent Collateral, Tom Cruise's character. <laughs> um, they, they, they talk about his um, family life and like his involvement in like sophisticated counter intel operations in the offshore world of like narco trafficking cartels at the end of the Cold War. Like it's all stuff that's never mentioned in that movie. Like you would never know that about his character, but it's it's there in Cruz's performance and you can sort of feel the history of like this guy who's just been weary by all of the, you know, corruption that he's seen in the world that has brought him to the point where killing another human means nothing to him, you know, yeah. versus the character of Max who, you know, um, you know, is a lot more sensitive and it's all of that sort of philosophical war that those characters have is conveyed through these wordless glances and tones and, you know, these psychologically subjective, um, shot choices that he makes and stuff like that. So that's just it is, you know, like you can, I guess you can say style over substance if you want to, but you know, working within the world of Michael Mann style has frequently just always been his substance. That's just how he's preferred to express himself. And I find this show, incredibly expressive and there's definitely yeah. times later on in the show where you can feel it leaning into the fast cars and the nice suits in a way <laughs> that maybe isn't as critical or right. as ugly um as uh, especially the movie would get um but i would say that you know the, the, when you got other filmmakers involved in this like abel ferreira did a couple episodes of the show uh, bill duke mm -hmm. who did deep cover did an episode or two of, uh, of the show that's awesome. like these filmmakers were clearly having fun being able to play with you know uh all the stuff that you see in the great title sequence after that cold open like the mm -hmm. the car grills at the dealership and the beach babes and the palm trees and the you know the casinos and the racing and the go fast boats like it's like this pulse pounding travelogue in one way which is obviously just very exciting and commercial and, and musical in terms of what you can do as a, a visual filmmaker. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's still attached to, you know, stuff that, you know, I think feels pretty expressive um, and not just, you know, there for the sake of it, which we'll get into when we get into some of the actual straight up musical sequences, maybe. Um, oh, yeah. In the in the show. Cause there's obviously there's, there's, there's a couple really great ones. There's one hugely iconic one, but there's actually a couple really good ones. Yeah, I agree. He always, he's using it to express character. I think you can see that right away. He always takes advantage of how he has characters who don't want to express themselves and who think it's their job to not express themselves. And so kind exactly. of every other element in the shot has to express their feelings for them in the, the same way you would do with like a melodrama when you have characters who are restrained. So they wear, you know, beautiful clothing or they send flowers to each other to express what they can. It's the, he works on that same romantic level, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. And, and all of his characters, so many of his stories are the, that guy, that professional guy, like a can it wait. I'm a little busy. Like uh, <laughs> yeah. Ricardo says when they come up to him with his shotgun, all these movies are about that guy going, maybe I should learn to feel things. Maybe I'm not supposed to just be focused on putting blocks together in a row in front of me. Maybe I need to let loose a little bit. And the, the imagery always kind of suggests that, that there's this more beautiful world they're just about to get. And then yeah. they never quite, never quite get there. Yeah. And, and, and also having to operate, you know, in this very, you know, sort of uh, world weary kind of compromised way. Like when we're uh, sort of initially introduced to Don Johnson's character here playing uh, Sonny Crockett, uh, who we're actually introduced to in this really glamorous, like split diopter shot of him smoking with sunglasses, you know, unshaven, oh, yeah. kind of greasy, but with the white linens suit and the 
the pastel t-shirt underneath and he's very annoyed at this street dancer who's working on the corner uh where and he's like, supposed to be uh meeting this dealer i like that the the music is kind of what gives his cool vibe as well as the camera pans up and then afterwards when he looks back he's just like turn that music down like he's he's, he's almost uh you know, it, it was part of the expression of his character in a sense, but then you realize he's just trying to shut these people up and it's just, uh, it, it shows a lot. He's like, he's got the style, but you know, he is kind of an asshole. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and they're discussing like, you know, their, how their relationships with their wives are going badly and their finances are yeah. going badly. Like, like you, you do wonder immediately off the bat, like what it is that they get out of this world. Right. Because yeah. like they're already complaining about you know the, the family life, they're complaining about the money, and over the course of the show, you do you know I think do pick up on this idea that the lavish stuff that is in this show is what attracts them to this world, the sort of yeah. excitement of it, the, the thrill. You know, there 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 is an appeal and a thrill and a high that they discuss that these guys are kind of addicted to in a way, and that's what pulls them. Um, towards it even when you know you get to the more destructive stuff like which we are pretty fucking quickly in yeah, in this for example quickly. where you get those great low angle shots of their meat underneath the freeway uh, with the dealer and there's these you know great concrete pillars that we're focused on and he leans down to pick up his sunglasses and underneath the car of the dealer that they are meeting with he sees there's a car bomb basically just in time to watch his friend uh, just get completely fucking smoked by yeah, this, and this like, is, massive C4 explosion and dummy is, and everything. Yeah. The body goes flying. It's, it's pretty ruthless. Um, and this is also two minutes after he's explaining how his like wife is five months pregnant and do, he doesn't <laughs> want her to have to work at the restaurant anymore and, and all of this stuff. Yeah. So like they, they just instantly set up that this kind of, this guy's background and then just blow him to hell. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty and, and also they talk about how uh, free enterprise is the basis of uh, Western democracy, dude. <laughs> I mean, the whole geocultural concept of it all, man. I think that's what he says. Yes. <laughs> when they're riding in the car. <laughs> yeah, I love that guy. Yeah. yeah that, there's always the, the, the labor issue comes up in man's movies a lot. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like you were saying about the, the glitz and glamour and colors of Miami. I mean, you know, the appeal is that it doesn't seem real, but that the problem is that it's not real. And then you get a scene like yeah. the mom that shows you how this place really works. Yep. And um, just as an aside, I love that the music, because I had forgotten this, that the music in the scene introducing Sonny is diegetic. And I didn't realize it at first. Oh, that it was yeah. Actually oh, yeah. Because he, he's getting annoyed about the music. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like in, a, in Eyes Wide Shut at the beginning when Tom Cruise reaches out and switches off the, the classical music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Because it's, it's in his room. Suddenly it's real. But yeah, free enterprise, dude. It's the basis of Western democracy. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that that wake up call is obviously the huge sort of conflict and contradiction of, you know, the, the and, and what drew, I think, man to the subject matter and what drew him to it again when he wanted to come back to it 20 years later. Um, but I think it was like the moments where, you know, this this guy who was his friend talking family issues with him is now just this burnt crisp on the side of the road. The other cops are like making jokes about it. Yeah, he's in the car. They're framed in this like incredible two shot where you can see the sirens like over top of them. They're like stuck inside the cop car like it's like a cage or something. And then he has to go home to his kid's birthday party still covered in like the blood and the rubble <laughs> of his friend's death. And Johnson is giving these very like, you know, soulful 
awful kind of weary expressions it in is, the household yeah. and like it's very clear this kind of torment has been affecting him for for a long time and he begins talking to his wife and he's like you know this kind of work we do it's it's tough on a relationship um and you know yeah. i think she just she just straight up goes like it's not the job you know you you know like there are you were doing well and you were doing this job for a long time and other people do this kind of work and don't have necessarily this issue it's the fact that he specifically wants to be like these guys that he goes after which is the very heat idea i think that that framing is actually even like uh said in dialogue in that film but she says you're all players you get high on the action also from heat the action is the juice (laughs) (laughs) yep yeah, she Which sees is an no observation between these cops and and these dealers at a certain point. And what's and what's funny too is later we find out, and not too much later, it's just how much of a clusterfuck the entire operation is, and and just numerous operations are. Like uh, he, they find out eventually that like three quarters of the dealers they thought they were working with were actually cops, and they're just talking to yeah, each they're, other. They're, it's, it's <laughs> which like, is so accurate too. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, it's horrible, but it's it's hilarious in a way. The irony. Yeah, it is. It, it it is practically farcical how yeah. involved and complex this web is, and how honestly they are just sort of perpetuating it at a certain point because <laughs> yeah, it's like that's, you're just becoming the dealers now because seventy five percent of you are actually just cops thinking you're tricking dealers when it's other, other cops. It's. It's yeah, and tricking themselves. I love that line later where the one colleague of his says, do you ever forget who you are? And he says, darling, sometimes I remember who I am, which <laughs> yeah. is a, it was such a great line delivery from Johnson, too, on that. That is good. Oh, yeah. So that's at some just, point you just don't have a goal anymore because it's got it's too complex and you're too tired. So yeah. that's where you get to the point where it's just like it's just doing the job. The act of going out and doing these things is the only reason that I'm doing it anymore, which yeah. gets back to the that Melville influence you mentioned where he's just focused on characters kind of obsessively maintaining their habits and there mm-hmm. might not even be a reason for it anymore, but it's, it's just all you got. Yeah. We also see, um, I believe like Rico, uh, he, he does a lot of voice changes and stuff like that. And you'll see scenes where he's talking to somebody, like he calls somebody up, uses a certain voice and then calls somebody else and uses another one. Like he's just constantly yeah, like the, the, the way that he flips the between act. like the Jamaican accent yeah. as the dealer that he's doing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And he's just like, you know, it's, it's at a certain point you just would probably lose yourself. Um, especially with all the, the inner relationships that you have to make with all of these, these dealers too, like at a, you know, you spend enough time with somebody, you just get to know them and it becomes just that much more complicated. Yeah, I mean, I love it, that they're both undercover when they meet that yeah, they meet yeah. when they're both undercover. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's one of the cool they've lost that like the, the whole identity aspect of this, I think, is, you know, like one of the most important things that would become a huge dramatic crux of the show as they move forward and tackled yeah. all kinds of subjects uh in this like a dick wolf the law and order guy took over the show about halfway through okay. and there was so much stuff in the show that like they they covered like abuse they covered the aids crisis american foreign policy in south and latin america as an oh, international wow. organized crime at a certain point uh dick wolf i think even had them do a whole arc in i can't remember which if it was four or five but there there's an there's a whole arc about like the troubles in ireland and like capital oh, punishment wow. at one point 
Damn. Like they they tackled tons of stuff, but but the, the you know this was all grounded in this original identity crisis with these two actors, which they did maintain basically until the bitter end of of the show. You know, like they they changed mm-hmm. their look sometimes. Don Johnson by season five, dude, his hair. It's oh the, yeah, it's so I gotta long. look it up. It's so great. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. It's so good. Is it a mullet? But like, what are we talking here? Yeah, it's so dude. It's longer than that, honestly. Oh hell um, yeah. It's fantastic, but <laughs> but the original grounding here in this pilot of just Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas, who you know are both really great on this show, and the sort of brooding charisma chemistry that they have together as Crockett and Tubbs, Sonny being this uh, former University of Florida Gators football star who got injured <laughs> and then went to Vietnam and then became involved in the undercover vice squad unit, and obviously he's soon to be divorced. He's living on his sailboat with his pet Gator Elvis, which is a great character character yeah and i love the way that he's described he's described as a beach bum cowboy who talks in football lingo with a beer commercial mentality um (laughs) that is absolutely the kind of uh sort of performance that he puts on yeah and then you throw in the sort of tortured weariness from the work and then you add in rico who is coming down to miami from new york on this very personal and you know sort of traumatic vendetta against this criminal calderon who becomes a little bit of an arc over the first season um and Mm. he is a mafia member who murdered his brother Raphael, and who he pursues across state lines violating obviously the nypd and becoming uh by the end of the pilot which we'll talk about becoming sonny's partner in the Mm -hmm. miami department but the most of this show is them or this 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 episode or this this pilot is uh these two finally sort of clashing courses and figuring each other out and feeling themselves out on the job which is kind of the key and as as emmett pointed out like meeting each other while both pretending to be people that they aren't like rico yeah when we see him in character he's like lip singing rockwell somebody's watching me and he's framed between like a stripper's legs (laughs) yeah just sweating and dancing even harder than she is i've never seen a man happier (laughs) that guy was just like he's dancing his ass off he's got big smiles throwing the cash man it's a it's a fun little scene But then you go back to his motel and on his bed it's just covered in cigarettes and guns and ammo. Like that part in like the Irishman when he's yeah. getting ready to do his assassination. He's like shirtless eating pizza. He's got his briefcase of cash going with these these very sharp cuts to these flashbacks of his mm-hmm. his partner and his brother getting murdered at a bust gone wrong, which is done in these, you know, very sharp impressionistic just sort of moments of like him staring in the mirror and then these images of him screaming and then images yeah. back to him and then images of, you know, his brother bleeding and going down and, you know, it's, it's these, very, um, these are hard-hitting. recurring too, uh, which I like yes. where he's like every single time he's reminded of it, whether he's go- getting deeper into the, the game of being a, a drug dealer and, and finding the person that did it. Like at one point he has to uh, shake the man's hand. So it seems like in public they're all good and, and nothing is, is, is wrong. Um, and as he's approaching him, he's just thinking about his brother the entire time. And it, it, it's just like, you know, he has to just kind of uh swallow yes, his suppress pride. that right yeah, yeah exactly and um it gets very complicated for him and and they do that i would say like four or five times in this episode maybe that's a bit of much but um like when i said like the number but uh it's it's around that and and i like every time they implement it 
Yeah, no, d- definitely. And when he eventually meets Sonny, it's at this great sequence where they are both doing a meetup, thinking that each other are the drug dealer that they are hoping to get <laughs> them to the same guy. They're both after the same guy. Yeah. Rico calls him Calderon, which is his name in New York. And uh, Sonny calls him. What, what, what is the name that he calls him? What is it? He's the is he just the I, I don't know why I'm blanking on this. He's um, not like the Colombian or something, but just, you know, something of that nature. Um, yeah, I can't where remember. they. Yeah, I can't remember it either right now. Um, I know what you mean, though. Yeah, it's a title and not actually his name. Yeah. And then he looks at a photo of him and he's just like, hey, that's that's the same guy I'm going after. But, right. but before that, when they meet each other, I like that they meet each other and they feel each other out through the work. It's like this great sequence where the deal immediately goes wrong. The cops uh, try to pull the bus too early and everyone just like, you know, cockroaches just flees in every single direction. And Rico gets in the boat and Sonny immediately takes over after him being like, well, who left the keys in the boat? Like, how is he able to get away in the boat? And so Sonny is in his Ferrari driving on the road, keeping up to Rico driving the boat. And you have these these great sort of like neon lens flares and POV shots of the boat as it's, you know, driving uh, through the water at night. And it, it literally is a chase sequence on land and water simultaneously. And there's even these great like, you know, in- incredibly frame shots where you can actually see the boat in the car and, and in the same frame. And then you cut to these close ups of them, like glaring at each other and like looking at, you know, it's sort of yeah. sizing each other up and also admiring the speed and skill of the, the person <laughs> they're after in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I also like when um, when Rico starts to call out certain things that Sonny is un- has been unable to see, like we find out about uh, certain deposits of money within the the um, uh, the division that he's working in and um and he just starts calling him out like uh basically you've gotten too close to some of these people and and it's very possible that the leak could be coming from you know your division and people that you know of and think that you can trust yeah they're both yeah, they're both definitely hurting and then they uh they take it out by punching each other that's one of the don greatest johnson, moments yeah <laughs> don johnson gets his sensitive little moment where you know uh Ricardo says, yeah, I had that coming. And, and Sonny's like, no, nah, you didn't, man. I was totally out of line. <laughs> as close as he'll get to apologizing. Yeah. And then they're friends and you can you can deal with my my gator who's tripping on a flight bag full of LSD. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of great detail like that. And even also, I'll say like some impressive like like stunt work and stuff, too. Like I yeah. thought about like that, that that nifty little shot of his Ferrari, like almost completely on its side during that chase bit before it's falling or that bit too. One of the best, I think, beats in the film or and and in the episode and that sick fucking crane shot of Tubbs um, basically driving underneath this big like steel bridge and it's framed like the bridge itself is like webbing that's about to capture him as it cranes down. Oh, yeah. And as it's craning down, it reveals that Sonny is standing on the bridge, but Rico doesn't see him. And then it cuts to this low angle shot of Rico finally passing underneath it just in time for Sonny to jump off the bridge and onto his boat. And then they get into, you know, the little bit of the altercation where he catches him and they finally, you know, do the little, they, 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 they touch base and they figure out, wow, he was also a cop. And yeah. there was only one drug dealer in the group of four of us who was at this meet. And, <laughs> 
like what like it's it's basically like this the cop version of like a meet cute going on between these two as they (laughs) yeah you know size each other up and give each other little taps and and they're they spend so long doing that and being like well i can't work with this guy and i can't work with this guy even though they kind of have a begrudging respect for each other and they do it for so long yeah that uh the one guy who wasn't a cop gets killed on their watch <laughs> Yeah, in a, in a sick, one of the uh, sick uh, needle drop moments where it's um, I think it's set to girls just want to have fun. And it's this <laughs> like fun, like beach montage of just all these characters kind of hanging out and uh, you know, like they're, they're kind of um, sitting there. There's this great cross cut between this woman who stands up with a purse and approaches their dealer contact who's supposed to be under protective custody and she she grabs him by the shoulder and turns him around and he looks into the camera and it's this huge like shock zoom on his face and it's Mm -hmm. match cut with a sunny grabbing tubs and doing the exact same thing where he's like hey like why are you know this little sort of snap zoom of of shock as they meet each other and then they walk over to be like hey which one of us is supposed to be watching the guy they find him and he's just dead with a bullet hole and falls over and it's so it's, it's again it's great style it's a great implication we can pick up that these two characters were kind of following each other and surprising each other and in the one it's two soon to be friends and in the other one it is a assassin killing someone and just like again that that style that kind of like warmness and lavishness turning into that darkness kind of on the flip of a dime it's a really great scene yeah absolutely and um i and we were just speaking on earlier that like kind of some of the tonal changes that it makes and, and dives into some comedy. I, I almost forgot about the uh, the court scene where everybody takes that. out a gun and just points as it as at soon as Leon. The power goes out. Yeah, and 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 they even kind of milk it a little bit where they have one of the women. Um, I, I can't remember if she's the typist or if if she's doing something else, but she just keeps pointing it like out of I don't know fear or whatever is going on. Um, and the, the judge has a hilarious like line where he says something about like, well, it was a, it was a great, uh, um, respect to the second amendment. It was like a display or something like that. Um, and it's and a it, glowing testament to our constitutional right to bear arms. <laughs> there it is, yeah. Incredible line. It's so great. I, I thought that that was very funny. And it, and once again, just almost strange how they can balance some of those things. Cause that's very like physical comedy kind of thing. Um, and uh yeah yeah same same with elvis every bit with elvis <laughs> yeah. is just like, like hilarious for another another great example is when they have that really quite sensitive and romantic scene between um uh sunny and and gina on the boat and you know they're saying like i like you and you know you got the romantic music going on and everything like that and you know she goes into the the little house section of the boat and right when you think he's just gonna follow her in it's gonna be smooth as hell he looks right at elvis and you get a shot of him and it, it it just creates this like very hilarious contrast uh, that somehow still works. There, there's just like so much style and coolness, and and it's it's willing to, I guess, be kind of lighthearted at times too. That it really works. There's definitely something cool about like this this unshaven, divorced, cool guy who has just a gator who lives on his <laughs> uh, sailboat with him. Absolutely, there's definitely. There's definitely something and, and the way that he talks to him and it feels like <laughs> his gator is judging him and how bad he is with his relationships. And, yeah, like the gator you know, understands. He's, he's doing. <laughs> yeah. 
and and well because he's uh, he also tries to tell Tubbs, and again i don't know how true it is i guess he tries to tell him that he was literally like the mascot of his university football team before and he he ate like uh like one of the players or something he suggests (laughs) or he took a bite out of one of them and like that's just kind of his attitude as well as like even when he when he's going on the scene to like look at suspects like places there's a part where he just like pulls a beer can from one of the suspects fridge and just starts downing one (laughs) hell yeah and then and so we, you'll yeah. you'll so you'll get a scene like that and then you will get you know these really you know uh, kind of moving moments mm-hmm. where like Tubbs is trying to keep his cool in front of Calderon set to like all night long by you know Lionel Richie yeah as as he's like he he's he's activated he's got to keep his cool he's got to shake his hands and he's got to suppress the you know the traumatic flashbacks of his brother being murdered right in front of him and him you know uh sort of impressionistically clu- uh, keying that in with his face like he keeps returning to this shot of Calderon in the car kind of like smirking at his brother's death and then rolling the window up and driving away and he has to like maintain his cool in in front of him and in that moment and yeah and also while pretending to be like three or four different people because he's also pretending to be his brother at that point still in the show like he's still introducing himself as Raphael Tubbs which is then and even Sonny doesn't know so that's yeah like you were about to say I'm sure it sparks it a a very huge controversy Yeah, because he he stole his brother's I, I, identity, which after the scene where he kind of, you know, has feelings for his colleague Gina and, you know, there's the sort of full moon and the boat and the soft rock. And, <laughs> you know, um, he he's he's told that, um, you know, Tubbs is pretending to be someone else or at least the guy he's saying he is died like months ago. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what if this guy's working for Calderon? What's happening? Like, who are you? Who are you? Is like a huge, you know, uh, subject of, you know, both the show and the film. Cause I actually realized too, that, uh, rewatching both. I don't think I've ever actually watched both back to back. Like I did for this. Mm. And this moment where Don Johnson is screaming, um, who are you? And Sonny is screaming it to Rico is actually mirrored in the film mm-hmm. when, uh, Gong Lee, is uh, shouting it at Sonny. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, saying, who are you? Who are you? Um, and, you know, obviously it's sort of resolved a little bit uh, slicker in this where, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, I sent out a fake Momo and forged my security <laughs> clearance and everything and, you know, whatever. Here's my ID. But, uh, here's but, everything. But here's my need. ID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and Sonny's uh, got his dead partner, of course, just like uh, Tubbs has his dead brother. And they're clearly just, yeah, they're both you know, playing games with their identity in part just to not have to dwell and focus on that and how much that hurts. Mm-hmm. Like when he, when Sonny calls uh, Vietnam the Southeast Asian Conference. Yes. That's, that's, that's all he says about uh, being in the Vietnam War. Is he just like, no, it was just, you know, that was just part of college football. That was just <laughs> another league. Nothing more than that. Yeah. And he's always cracking jokes about it too because he's like, you were in Nam? And he was like, no, Coney Island. <laughs> <laughs> um. But but also, you know, he's he's very committed to this. He, he knows, I think, at a certain he, he's self-aware enough to know that he's doing a lot of damage and destruction. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think that there is this sort of impassioned quality to him in this. And obviously over the course of the show where he he needs to feel like there is a point to it 
And I think that's the thing that really hurts him about this moment where he was kind of getting close to this guy and he turns out the guy's not who he says he was. And then he's just like, look, this is the biggest score of my career. And I've teamed up with an outlaw New York street cop on a hit mission. Yeah. He's like, this is both embarrassing and it's ruining, you know, this chance that I have to make all of these deaths, you know, matter and mean something to capturing you know, capturing this person who did this stuff and, you know, yeah. getting some closure on it. And what I think is unique about this pilot spent, is that that's not resolved, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. And all this time that he spent, you know, basically, not on purposely, but destroying his family as well. Like, he's just like, this mm-hmm. This is risked, you know, it's, it's taken everything from him, really. The only thing he has left is this kind of fake identity. And now he's just looking at somebody that could ruin it because, um, you know, he's emotionally involved and... uh um, he spent so much time kind of detaching himself from any emotion mm-hmm. and trying to school Rico. On, yeah, I was just going to exactly the same yeah. thing. Yeah, uh, it's uh, exa- uh, exactly what he says to Rico. He's trying to school him on when it gets personal, it gets messy. And when it gets messy, the wrong people get killed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's definitely, you know, like very clearly something he feels, you know, uh, really deeply about that. That's that's really affected him. Um, which, which then hurts him even more when he realizes that the betrayal is a very personal one. Um, yeah. like, like when they, cause you know, Rico keeps bringing up to a degree that, you know, keeps, uh, he, he doesn't want to believe or admit, but there, there's a leak in his department and he thinks that, you know, it could be his higher up because he keeps getting this money. He's not sure where people in his department are getting this money they're getting from that he clearly doesn't have. And they end up finding it that it is actually the guy who was helping him set up the meat in where him and Rico met the third cop turns out the third cop was also actually involved and was a criminal and he was the leak. And that scene when he goes up to his house and he knocks on his door and it's this, you know, it's framed in these very standard domestic images of this wide of him pulling up to the house and knocking on the door and all the kids being like, uncle Sonny, like come in and eat it. Like it's so devastating for him to have to hand his friend that evidence and be like, you know, you're the rat. And, you know, he's very angry with him about that, but he's just like, he's like heartbroken. He's just like, you did this to like pay like two months of your mortgage and like cover your kids, you know, remaining medical expenses. And he's like, on some level, he's sympathetic, obviously, to that, you know, uh, sort of financial issues that he had, like he was talking yeah. with the, his other partner who got killed. But he's also like how many of his friends died because of that and he's like screaming at him like how much to buy you scotty and he's like all they wanted was information yeah uh, you know and, and i i tried to pull out and i didn't think anyone would get killed and i got a family and he's you know talking i got a medal of valor <laughs> yeah it's i'm always a sucker for that moment when someone gets pulled away from the table and then they look back yeah. at the family and they realize oh that was my last family dinner and i didn't even know it let's step outside and talk yeah and the wife even says something like don't take long honey that kind of thing like you got to get <laughs> yep. back here and take care of the kids and and all of that you're just like nope this is about to be life-changing it's that yeah. domestic normalcy you don't get to have when you're in a michael mann world <laughs> yeah yes yeah. you long. don't get to have it <laughs> exactly yeah well and then and then and obviously the 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 heartbreak for johnson's character is so palpable in the sense that he's like that relationship I had with this guy that had to have been like a real thing, right? Like I felt things for this man and I, I don't, 
I don't get it. Like I had him over for dinner. I trusted this he guy. He took a bullet for friendly. me, I think they say at one point. So it's like there's yeah, kind like of I, that life, uh, like a debt almost he feels. Yeah, so it's almost like this, he, he starts bleeding between, you know, the performative world of he plays characters to hang out with all of these guys who live in this lavish, violent world. But at a certain point, you can't always be that guy. You have to let your guard down a little bit. You have to have a real, you know, connection with human connection with someone. And yeah. just, yeah, thinking it was this guy when it turned out that he was also being performed to utterly destroys him which is expressed in this incredible sequence that's in, obviously iconic the in the air tonight phil collins needle drop previously we saw in risky business done very well but yes. i think taken here to an extreme that is iconic for a reason and it's that this, focus on just like the the dead air that the, the, they're just driving they're not mm -hmm. talking all of the like you know you still have the stylish car shots but it just seems so much sadder now it seems like they're just a empty men in this neon filled like fantasy land um and uh yeah it's 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 really well done i loved it i yeah. think more than like i ever see in the show this is where the movie comes from like if i had to yes point yeah. to a moment in the pilot that reminds me of the movie like you said josh they're very different in terms of style but in terms of mood mm -hmm. this is this is pretty close yeah yeah, I mean, like, this was definitely, yeah. like, the thing where, you know, they, the thing that got them accusations of being too stylish was because, again, they, they took these real cases and investigations in, in drug war that someone else would have made into a sort of normal, typically plotted procedural, and he was like, okay, but what if we actually express those characters through this, again, sort of, like, you know, very moody, neon music video style that captures how these people feel on their mission, and what if it makes them visually look like they're incredibly lonely? and driving through space like the way the pov shots of the black car and the wheels and the hood reflecting lights like stars and yeah. the spacey synths and everything like it's just and 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 i love also like they're floating uh, also what he picked up on for the film was how curt they are with the the very direct sort of macho poetry of the way they talk the mm -hmm. how much time we got yeah. 25 minutes <laughs> or when he i love when he of course when he gets into the telephone booth and he's just like, uh, it was real, wasn't it? And that's that's yeah. like all he really says. She he just gets his response, like confirms that it's kind of like what you were saying earlier, where he every once in a while remembers who he actually is. And in that moment, his wife was saying like, yes, like we had that moment. And then he's just off to to go to the shootout. Um, yeah, but I but I I love the 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 framing of that question too. Is that it was real. Right. Like oh, yeah. there was a time I like I, I love yeah. that it's like this thing where it's almost like he's in he's in a waking dream world. And occasionally he just he he gets enough self-consciousness to be like, is it was any did any of this happen? Am I still asleep? Is it yeah. <laughs> are, are things happening here? And just, yeah, the way that that's expressed of them, you know, uh, just the. the 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 air and the way that they're driving together the way that their hair is blowing just having rico load that shotgun beside him giving obviously the air of danger to it as well and the sort of cosmic loneliness of these two you know moving through the the city in the way that they are and yet when he pulls up to the rundown payphone at the diner to call her and just the colors and the lights and everything oh, yeah and yeah trying to get the reassurance the purples that and greens you know he really does have a wife and a kid yeah, or at <laughs> it's least basically what he wants to hear that family had that love in his life had something that he could like hold on to um 
And yeah, it's it's really sad, honestly. Even with and, all and, that and the rhythm of it too is uh, perfectly timed because all of the the build up part of the song mm-hmm. is all of the stuff where they're talking, oh, and it's timed yeah. perfectly so that when the conversation is over and he hangs up the phone and he gets back into the car, it's just in time for the drums to kick in. Yes, and there's also another part that I almost forgot about when he calls her. And he, he says like the first thing, I, I can't remember exactly what it is. Maybe it's like, hey, baby, or something like that. But then as soon as, right before she talks, uh, it, it's Phil Collins and he goes, I remember. And I just, was like, <laughs> yeah. that timing He's is on the so phone with Phil fucking Collins. good. Yeah, it's just like, as soon as he he uh, she heard his voice, it was like Phil Collins like swoops into her mind. It's like, I remember everything, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, and yeah, I just, uh, those two drops are are perfect, like, really really awesome yeah because i mean as soon as as soon as the drop hits and it's like a smash cut to like the 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 shot of the hood and all you see is the hood reflecting light yeah and that's showing you the the speed that they're moving and the way that they are traveling towards this uh you know what what very well could be you know their their own deaths in a way like they don't know for sure they're they're going all in on taking this guy down um which when they do arrive at the drop uh, it's a pretty nasty and like pretty sudden like slow mo moonlight shootout. Yeah, and and this and the squib work is awesome. Like you, you really yeah, it's pretty chunky. Yeah, I was I was pretty surprised, especially just given it was for television. Um, and and then even after that, like it happens really quick. Honestly, they they kind of have the showdown pretty pretty quickly, and then it goes into this amazing, um, very dark and it has a lot of use of shadows while they're going in between the docks. And and looking for uh, Calderon, um, mm-hmm. it's 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 awesome. Just that once again, this kind of like it, it, it's at first very macho and in your face and all the squib work and stuff. But then he really just takes his time with the suspense afterwards, and uh, it's great. It's awesome. It looks like the end of Heat when they're chasing yeah. each other around the airport for sure. Definitely. Or like, yeah, um, you definitely, you definitely get the sweaty faces and like the quick glances of the eyes and, and like the sound now. design. It's like the creaking metal of like the dockyard and, you know, the shoes hitting the puddles and stuff like it's, it's very suspenseful. And yeah. And it, when, when he turns around and just looks into the face of the close up shot of the sawed off shotgun oh, <laughs> right man. there, that focus great is moment. so great. Yeah. Oh, it, it, I, I love that. And then, and then this and is where really where it leads, like all of these flashbacks that we've been seeing, um, you know, like this is the moment that it's, that it's led to. And I think he even, they, they, they throw it back in again, one more time just to they kind do. of, yeah, yeah, just to really hammer home the point. It, it works well though. <laughs> well, yeah, cause he's doing this intense glare and Calderon, you know, he's so, he's so confident that he's like, you're a cop, you got to arrest me. You know, you can't shoot me. That's against the line. He's like laughing about it, not knowing obviously how close he is to literally just being shotgunned in that moment like Rico uh with the flashback and with the glare like he very clearly wants to do it there's even this great moment that I had to go back and like double check to see because I think what it is there's this moment where you can see him pull the trigger yeah and I'm gonna guess it was him fantasizing about pulling the trigger like an alternate yeah yeah I couldn't tell either because it almost looks like he he when they go back to him he's slightly to the side but it didn't seem like it would be enough so I I feel like it might be this kind of fantasy moment too. You're right. 
Yeah, I, I think it's definitely he imagined pulling the trigger and, you know, getting the release and the, you know, the the catharsis of, you know, that both these characters are looking for, like capturing this guy, finishing it, you know, doing something. We've had so much build up to this moment. We should have the release. But again, they had to kind of have to suppress that and take him in, which is then yeah. immediately undercut by him escaping by Bale and Seaplane, which is like a hilarious, uh, you know, thing that they deal with over the course of the show a lot is how inefficient, obviously, the war on drugs is and was. Yeah. And it becomes like at, by the end of the show, the arc of the show is that they eventually just fucking leave because everything is so corrupt and they are involved oh, in wild. so <laughs> many different countries. And like that's that's the <laughs> end point. So the deep into it, they're like, we can't fucking fix any of this shit. I am out of here. That's wild. Yeah, they they literally turn their badges in. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the show. Oh wow. Um, so like that's the, like and and they set it up here though. It's they they set oh, it up yeah. with you know like very clearly this isn't working and these guys still didn't get any catharsis out of it. But what did they get? And what did man once again focus on when he would eventually go to the movie? They got each other out of it. And that is all that, you know, kind of ends up uh, mattering to them as they watch that plane take off right in front of them. And they're completely exhausted. And he even says, like, I'm sorry, you know, like I we I should have just let you kill him. (laughs) And I like he also says, I think uh, he'll be back as if they just know that the cycle is going to continue. I mean, you want to think he's got a little bit of optimism, but it just feels like he's he's mostly like, yeah, this this will never stop. I mean, we're we'll get another chance. (laughs) Definitely over the course of the show, everything, the whole thing becomes like this big hydra. Like every time they take one down, there's like three more new ones. And they, you know, they they eventually get very uh, weary um, of that. Yeah, and it does but at I, least but end I, but in a nice, you know, friends laughing together. <laughs> I do like that. I do like that, that there is this sense of, like, these two characters who in their own worlds have done so much damage and feel so much despair and pain over, you know, the fact that they can't get any sort of relief from, mm. you know, this job that has been doing the damage to their immediate families. And, yeah, instead they just... uh decide to find comfort in uh, reassuring each other and helping each other. Yeah. Which is Michael Mann's big thing. He still does that. That's the end of Black Hat, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Michael Mann. You know, that's what's so strange about this. Because, again, Mann did not write or direct this. And And yet. And yet, yeah, everything is just purely purely him front to back and i yeah. you know I, I guess i should give some credit to yurkovich and thomas carter because i think this is an amazing piece of you know writing and filmmaking and a huge moment for tv especially um but yeah it's 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 really fucking cool and if we're maybe pivoting towards um the reductive rating round, you know, again, I think this is hugely important and influential moment in TV history. Yeah. Merging with actual film history where you have like this just once in a generation visual and sonic stylist somehow getting an insane amount of control over a commercial expensive product that would go on to have five seasons and be massive. And without writing or directing it, basically strong, strong arming it as a producer and showrunner to his unique you know, emotional and uh, style sensibility. And, and as I mentioned, given so many guest directors and actors, like I didn't even get to mention that, how many different actors appeared on this show? Jamie, you would be floored if you knew um, how, like, um, 
let's see, uh, Larry Fishburne, Viggo Mortensen, Liam Neeson, Pam oh, Greer, damn. Bruce Willis, Bill Paxton, Wesley Snipes, John Turturro, Chris Rock, Melanie Griffith. Like it's so. This was one of those shows that it was like everyone was tr- really trying to get on. So they have those those big names that are at least starting out. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. So like so many huge actors and so many great directors that we love again, like Abel Ferreira and Bill Duke were doing episodes um, of this and everyone just loved the vibe, loved the music. At certain points in the show, they used songs from Peter Gabriel, Roger Daltrey, Devo, Kate Bush, Tina Turner, Pink Floyd, Depeche Mode, The Police, you know, just about basically everyone, as well as we didn't really get to mention it, but um, I think it's Jan Hammer. Um, who does the uh, the main themes, like the main theme for the show and, and uh, Crockett's theme and stuff, like the jazzy sort of pulsating synth pop stuff that he did, you know, very much in the same realm as Tangerine Dream and Thief. So again, it's just yeah. this man, just like all over it. And I could see people watching this now and being like, yeah, there's not a lot here that I don't see like regularly on TV now. But at the time, yeah. you know, th- this was a huge moment for cinematic style and being able to see that at home. I was and floored. <laughs> I was like, this is a television show. This is just incredible. People, it, it if, so if people had word, like seriously, if, if people, I think in the eighties saw wordless sequences for like five minutes, people would stop paying attention. Like TV was yeah. the writer's medium. You know, it was yeah. like, it just, it was not a thing that made, made sense to do. And they made it like the biggest, like one of the biggest things um, ever. And I think even if there weren't five seasons of a good show attached to this, I think this brother's keeper TV movie stands just as, as well on its own. It's just a great solo story of this real occupation and psychology and sort of dangerous underworld and the lavish structures that surround it and the pain and weariness and addictive high that, of these people who kind of operate within it. So yeah, yeah. for me, this is, uh, this is, this is the five. Um, nice. Just, uh, yeah, just really, uh, is this your favorite amazing... episode out of the ones that you've seen? Or There's a couple others. Okay. Yeah, there's there's a there's a couple others that are out there, but this is the one that I return to the most just because gotcha. it's it's it it, it hasn't a proper opening and closing. So I feel yeah. like it's the one where I just constantly am like I could literally throw this on any time. Yeah, because it does feel minutes. like even after the, the the guy escapes and he says you know well he'll be back, it, it just feels like a, a a cyclical thing. So I, I think it works well yeah. and it does close up. So totally. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give it uh, right now. I think I'm just going to give it the strong four. But I, I mean, I absolutely loved this. I, I think the the mood is incredible, how they balance like quite silly comedy at times with these like incredibly sad and, and very almost like, uh, I don't know, spacey uh, scenes that they do. Like, I, I it, you know, it's the famous scene, but that in the air tonight scene, finally seeing it was was pretty incredible. I, I, I understand why it went down in history. It's 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 an unbelievable vibe. Uh, and just I, I love how every single shot flows in with that song and how they still have the the that that just very small conversation, which I like to uh, with the wife. Um, it's like they don't have a lot to say to each other, but it's enough uh, kind of thing. And, and that that kind of goes along with most of the scenes when they're expressing themselves. They don't really know how to do it, um, but you know they, they they try their best with the the kind of like simple but language. But they clearly that they feel use. things. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's just they don't really understand themselves, and I like how they 
at least try uh, to slowly understand themselves and, and kind of make these epiphanies ab- ab- about themselves. So I, I think uh, it's pretty incredible. Um, and so, yeah, strong, strong four for now. I, I just want to watch the show and check out more. I think uh, it might be oh, something yeah. I actually put on. So do it up for you, Emmett. Yeah, I'll have to go with the five on this one. It's uh, nice. like I said, I wasn't I didn't get into it until after I was already into Michael Mann and actually watched the movie before I watched any of the show just going on its reputation. And then coming back to this, it is a uh, it's it's wild to contemplate this airing on television at the same time <laughs> as, yeah, what was like reality here, you know, yeah, just uh, hmm. complete anomaly. And and there's just that that angsty, erotic quality to it that's just so different from any other cop show, even the more stylish ones. Uh, never try to give you that mood. So yeah, definitely the five. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, I think that will uh, wrap it up for Miami Vice Brothers Keeper. We are going to be right back and we are going to be talking about man's uh, directorial version of it where he stylistically uh, shifted it to the yeah. mid 2000s in a huge way. Um, but uh in, in a controversial way, although <laughs> the, the tides have been turning on this uh, critically for a very, very long time. And I'm excited to talk about it. So we are going to be back. We're going to be talking about Miami Vice 2006. Stick around. Right, we are back and we are talking Miami Vice, the 2006 neo noir crime romance action epic. That's right, written and directed by Michael Mann, and obviously adapted from the original 80s hit television show of the same name, which we just covered the pilot of. But this one is full, uh, you know, a full man to the tilt. This is everyone, even if you watch the behind the scenes on this one, everyone will tell you this was this was what he was given when he was given 100 percent freedom. And I think if I'm correct, the most money he's ever been given in his career, this is like a hundred and thirty five million dollar film, <laughs> which is insane to think about that. that there was a time where screen. someone was, would be given. Yes. <laughs> It, just insane to think about because in between man working on the show, you know, we had already talked about, he did Jericho mile and he did thief and in, he did, he did the show. And while he was doing the show, I think he was pre-production on Manhunter. So he did Manhunter, He did the keep last of the Mohicans, the insider Ali, um, all of these films, he had a time to, you know, really develop what it was that he was interested in doing over the course of, you know, a lot of really incredible films. And if we were to kind of maybe start off here with any of them, I would say that the the sort of bones of what you would see in this film uh, can be found, I think, in Heat and Collateral as the two yeah. sort of like central 
building blocks. You have heat in the sense that it's just a very macho melodrama and it has this focus on this intense destructive psychology of these obsessive professionals and criminals, which has just been a career long interest and obviously the subsequent sort of personal and emotional fallout. But you also have like the individual's attempt to kind of like maintain sort of like cold uh, codes of honor and this sort of ugly systems of the organ of the you know modern organized world and the modern aspect i think really develops in his you know sort of heat onwards he gets really interested in the idea of like telecommunications and if anyone who's ever seen public enemies that whole thing is about like the rise of the fbi and you know sort of like the shading in of of the world in ways that you know close people off and old old modes of living um and then obviously you have the architecture and the lighting and from from heat especially where you get characters just visually overwhelmed by like vacant alienating landscapes and modernist architecture and steel and like every time i go back to the movie i just got to see it in a theater again recently no other filmmaker would include that uh, giant mountain of yellow sulfur that's in the background (laughs) of that one shot right just no one would do that like it makes them look briefly like they're on an alien planet to just see that giant yellow thing behind them yeah um but once once again miami vice i think pulls a lot from what he would develop in heat which was a little bit more of like a realistic depiction of the technical process of these characters like more so than the miami vice show like just how focused it is on the sort of the tactical violence and the engineer like precision and the sort of document documentation of you know these real types of people who do this work but then combining that with the moody masculine you know sort of loner poetry and the electric soundscape and you know everything else that the heat is also despite being as technical as it is it's very very romantic and painterly you know still yeah and this is i mean they they also strip out pretty much all of the the comedy um in this like there are some moments that i find still funny and i think they in in a sense they're kind of diving into it like uh just as an example when um when Colin Farrell's Sonny uh, returns from meeting with Isabella for the first time, and you know he's just like, uh, "We're both we're both coming on to each other," like that kind of thing. It's it's <laughs> it's not one way or the other. I promise you that you know I've got it under control. Yeah, that kind of shit <laughs> is very funny. Um, it's just that it's it's in a much darker tone, and you're understanding that this character is getting you know far too deep, and that these feelings are becoming um, very very real. Yeah, I, so, I, I, I love the wording on that. Where I think he, I think it's uh, Fox asks him, "Are you making moves on the Colombian's woman?" And he's like, "We're making moves on each other." <laughs> yeah, and it's you know he's got his uh, his big strut, the giant mustache, just full machismo, and you know it, it's he's like he, he wants to to express that he completely has this under control. He's he's not getting in too deep. It's not going to ruin the investigation, any of that kind of stuff. He's just he's doing the job. That's what he's doing. Um, but I just love in that moment, you still get a little bit of, you know, their uh, th- their character and there's comedy from that. But, you know, they've completely stripped away the you know, there's no Elvis, uh, <laughs> you know, none of that. Um, yeah. You know, there there's. Uh, yeah. So it, it's it's a lot more sad and um, a very much more serious um, in in all aspects, really. Yeah, it definitely takes the element from heat that he developed of like the sort of like this thing that almost feels a mythic in scope, but is still very dreamy and intimate 
uh, with yeah. its characters, as well as brutal in kind of like its realism in terms of like the actual work and the actual I violence when it when it crops up. And yeah, um, but but the thing is, is that, you know, like that felt like the peak of what he was able to do with film. Mm-hmm. And the key to this film is that with Ali, he first started experimenting with digital cameras. And Collateral was, I think, the first one that he shot. I think it was it's half digital and maybe even the only specific 35 millimeter sequences in that. It might even be more than half digital. Okay. But I know that working with Dion Beebe, the cinematographer, um, with Collateral, he was basically like, I've always wanted to see a version of L.A. where you can actually see what the night looks like, like when you're awake at night. And they turned that into basically a style exercise because he didn't write that screenplay. That was actually basically it's like a lean run all night thriller about a cab driver taken hostage by an assassin. Yeah. And it's very, you know, very lean and very simple for man. But he turns it into this story that feels like this sort of cosmic meeting of these two forces. And again, he throws in sort of the digital immediacy and the working class detail that man always manages to kind of fit into the logistics of it. And you have so many wonderful little acting gestures between like Cruz and Fox. And obviously it was his time working with Fox that made him want to bring him back for this film as well. But those two characters like locked into this moral and philosophical battle as well as like this obviously very literal one of a guy kidnapping another guy. Yeah. Um, but, but, but the key to it is the, is the stylish mood and the constantly on the move handheld digital low light depiction of LA at night. Like when you get to those moments where you hear Chris Cornell just howling mm-hmm. into like the images of that fuzzy orange sky, which is in this too. <laughs> yeah. It, it's just, it's, it's really beautiful stuff and i know that man basically it was the reason he wanted to shoot miami vice that way like like Mm. they were kind of experimenting with it on collateral and i think they they didn't feel like they had really nailed it yet and they like they were like we can get these amazing things where we can you know we can get this sort of digital noise and we can get you know this light this orange haze in the sky that's kind of smeary and you know smoggy and really lights everything up in the way it does when you're really there and feeling it and also they like to the improvised sort of improvised nature of digital shooting where they could shoot for longer they yeah. could work with smaller equipment and that was how they say that they got the coyote shot which became one of the most iconic moments of mm-hmm. collateral like the coyote just wandered onto the set it wasn't planned and they just filmed that And it became one of the most like deeply felt, you know, sort of like moments in the film where you get, you know, Cruz kind of relating to this other lone wolf who's also prowling the L.A. streets. Yeah. And it's this very primal, uh, but also very, you know, urban thing at the same time. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden, man had a new interest, digital cameras and all of his lifelong obsessions with technical realism of professionals and stylishly abstracted expressions of their emotional lives and how they move through their worlds. And he was like, there's all of a whole new toolkit on how we can express that through this hyper digital sort of like urban landscape impressionism. And like, obviously there were other filmmakers adopting digital even earlier than man, like dogma 95 filmmakers were doing it. Jean-Luc Godard, I think made a film on digital in like 2001. Um, but the way that man's Mm -hmm. digital, yep. The way that man's digital photography, uh, was originally received around this time was completely embarrassing. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing but talk of how amateur and ugly 
it looked as if like this guy who had just made probably a handful of the most gorgeous movies of the 80s and 90s <laughs> just forgot to think formally and he forgot how to construct shots and images for a second like the idea that this was a deliberate stylistic choice did not enter the minds of like 90 percent of people who went to see this movie in 2006 which just kind of blows my mind when you watch it now because i think removed from you know the amateurish of early digital where you went yeah yeah i could shoot something like that because look at all that like crappy grain that you know it doesn't have the detail and resolution that film has to offer like yeah. it has very clear limitations when you look at it but the idea that someone would weaponize those limitations for their expressiveness yeah w just blew people's fucking minds they were like that's literally not possible and i think now that we have digital cameras that you know, can do 8K or whatever it is they're up to now. I think if someone shot a movie like this, people would be like, okay, clearly, you know, they're not just choosing, you know, clearly they're actually choosing to make their film look like this. And, yeah. But at the time, everyone was like, no, this is a budgetary thing. It's just yeah, cheaper I, and he's just lazy and that's all there is to it. I actually <laughs> remember when you showed me this for the first time, uh, just thinking, like kind of feeling jarred by by the digital photography, but it, it worked for me in such a way because it, it made me feel like I was watching, uh, it, at least in many moments, um, like more of a cop show. Like I was watching legitimate people in these locations dealing with these operations. I just felt like it gave a more of a realistic um, feel to everything uh, and, and more mm -hmm. grounded in reality. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 th I think it works in incredibly well, especially when those those moments of um real uh like devastation occur like the highway scene with john hawks it, it is just oh, yeah. absolutely we'll incredible like um and i really feel like the digital photography brings out a very real sadness to that scene um and uh kind of a a panic and all that so i I've, it's been very gratifying to see the reputation of this one turn around over time mm -hmm. it's uh one of those where it's it's exciting to see see the cult get bigger yep. and it's i th you know i think a lot of it yeah, is people just not asking why he made the choice he did to shoot it this way and what he could be revealing that he wouldn't have been otherwise and i think it is ha how that collided with the storytelling which is really different from something like heat where you have yeah. man's mm -hmm. talked about it before as a very kind of severe rigid old school drama of these two characters mirrored or collateral which like you said he didn't write and has a very goal-oriented thriller plot of like you got the five places that we're going to hit each place and something the drama is going to get ratcheted up each time and this is is so it moves so quickly but that works well because that's what it's about and that's what his style really works for a story like yeah, it's this. literally losing control and the world slipping from you in yeah. kind of a way and it's 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 a very different approach which is cool because this remake or update like still retains a lot of that doomed romance neon nighttime drive vibe of the show that we were talking about that we liked so much but obviously just the specifics have kind of changed between 1986 and 2006 in a lot of ways so i think a lot yeah. of people at the time were expecting this 80s neon cocaine music video pastiche that the original show was doing or not that it was doing but was of its era and they expected it to be recreated and here it was just an entirely different sensibility that was closer <laughs> to man's existential character pieces and his very overly researched milieu of like realistic narco trafficking geopolitics and like the strategies yeah. of it and the techniques like there's a lot of technical jargon to like the ways that these characters talk to each other but 
the shift in interest from film to video for him, I think, was really highlighted well in what Emmett was just talking about by uh, this writer, Philippe Furtado, who I've talked about a couple times on the show. He described it really well in his review where he said the rich, detail oriented world of man's 80s and 90s films mutated from this high novelistic accumulation of detail to one where all of that research became background, like background noise. And it be- instead, the stories mm-hmm. about those worlds became like this clutch to you know, remain a part of it, even though the world is like on the verge of dissolving. And so, yeah, and I I think that that very much describes the difference between where you get heat and you get kind of or and even collateral, you do get sort of uh, really thrilled by the almost the logic of it and the way that the characters operate, the decisions they make. And it's, it's very writerly. And in here, it does just become more about experience and sensory and you know it's still romantic and it's still mythic in that kind of way but it was definitely like how do how can i express that through like the fuzzy texture of the camera or the vivid saturation and the depth of field like how um how you can just like see everything and you can see the Mm. sky like he was like it really was like how do i turn this researched thoughtful film but now it's just going to be this pure melancholic mood piece essentially where you know like he is just as focused on characters talking as he is on like the way that the miami sky looks and the way that the lightning goes off like a painting in the background like it's still again very macho genre piece in many ways down to how these characters talk to each other and and also the action is some of the most gruesome and brutish of his entire career it is. um but like overall this has less in common with like 80s action than it does i don't know I, like when i watch this film i think of films like claire denise beau travail which is something i showed jamie not that long ago yeah. or like something we've covered wong car wise fallen angels like the yeah, way that definitely. nightlife is depicted or in terms of these massive melodramatic feelings of these characters shit sometimes i think about malik or like joseph oh, yeah. von sternberg and before we get like too pretentious about it like that's like it's it's just it's crazy to me that you have miami vice <laughs> and you have you know this very in some ways dated 2000 update on it that it has like you know moby and audio <laughs> slave and you know smash cut opening lincoln park and jay-z on it like this is it's it, it, so 2000s cool is quote unquote i guess what i would call it yeah which you know for some people that could you know maybe that's not their favorite place to return to but i think well, despite I was 14, that so i'm i'm living in it yes <laughs> absolutely me too man me too so i'm i i'm all there for it but i think even if you're not there is something just still so there is something timeless about the way that he um just shot this and stylized it it's just one of the most yeah. like radically beautiful looking movies that i've just ever seen and i know that they spent seven months testing this equipment and customizing it to their needs to like get exactly what it was that they wanted out of the camera work and everything here, which is definitely like a huge thing that we're going to be talking about. But like how that translates to just like the experience of living with these characters, which I think is what Jamie was kind of talking about is like Mm -hmm. the key. Like it's not just, it definitely gets real in the sense that, when you get into the action scenes, you almost feel like you're watching photojournalistic war footage of like a camera over the shoulder of a guy who's like on a battlefield. Yeah. But 
you have that side of it where it's hyper real in that way, but it's so real that it circles back almost into being something that's like unreal and dreamy and kind of uncanny mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways in the way that they weaponized the footage and everything, which you do get out of this movie in like the opening 20 minutes, which I think oh, it's is so some good. of the hardest 20 minutes to like any movie that's ever been made. It's insane. Yeah, and, it's and you, just, you you have to sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was I was just going to say it's 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 very simple too the way like uh, not not the way it's shot. I mean, it's brilliant. Just that like but I love how a lot of it is uh, the camera work is far away and so you can see all the people that are partying and in the club but every single time you see one of the the cops that's undercover he just has this most stern face on just looking around darting his eyes it's just it, i found it almost kind of funny in a way that these guys are you know playing the undercover thing um but at the same time it, it, you look at them compared to the hundreds of people surrounding them and you're like that's a cop i mean you're you're looking out for something right now you know what i mean yeah um and i just think that that that's kind of done brilliantly in a way uh and then when they start to like move in between all of the people and kind of almost use them as cover sometimes when they're knocking out a guard and then going into the bathroom like that kind of stuff um uh, kind of focusing on the technical aspects of it as well it's just it's it's brilliant um and really thrilling too it just moves so fast and that ends yeah. up, like I said, being kind of the point that this is a story about people who can't keep up with their own lives or their own jobs or their own feelings and yep. everything is just racing ahead of them. And that, that adds to the surreal quality of it, which is brought out so strongly from, from the visuals. And so I was, yeah, I was rewatching this and I was like, I had two thoughts going in my head. I had one was just, this is the greatest movie ever made. Like this is just the best use of money that Hollywood has ever filtered through the studio system. And in the other half of me is like, I, I see why people who were walking in, like you said, Josh, expecting kind of the, the, the 80s throwback were completely thrown off. Yeah. Like, yeah. Almost disorienting. It's just something more glamorous. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, disorienting. It's structurally very weird. Like something like Thief, I think, is basically perfect in terms of the pacing. Mm-hmm. Like if someone says they don't like Thief, my honest first reaction would be like, I don't believe you. Like that's just, yeah. that mo- that it's a very perfect. satisfying movie to watch. Like, come on. <laughs> exactly. But this one, like this, this is one of those movies where I think the people who love it and the people who hate it are responding to the same things. Yeah. And are yes. responding to the same choices it's just very differently. It. And it's a tone thing because like, it, this is one of those movies where I think some people are like, how seriously am I supposed to be taking this though? Cause it's very emotional and intimate, but also you got the pointy beard on Jamie Foxx and the mullet on, <laughs> on Colin Farrell. And he's doing and this like t- tough guy voice that I like that he goes like in and out of, uh, depending on my who mama he's talking and my to. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. My daddy knows me. Yeah. Like that for some people Gets that just throws off the tone. Exactly. But I think that mix of tones is what's so special. Cause it's, it's basically a romance disguised as an action movie. Like that's how I try to sell this to people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it, it seems like it's going to be about doing tough things and then not too far into it, it it stops dead and turns into a romance. And even like if you think about how many action movies have really perfunctory sex scenes or romance subplot that clearly exists just so you have it there or so you can cast a woman in your movie. And this is like the flip where the action scenes are really well done, like you were saying, but they're, they're really short and really brutal and just gotten done with. And like the romance and the sex scenes are what actually draws the camera. Yeah, well, because normally the, the action is the glamorous thing in a film like this. It's the juice, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and in, in, in this case, it's like horrifying. You're it's like, so why would these guys too. ever want to go to one of these places where one of these shootouts might happen? Like you immediately yeah. are like, I would never want to be within 100 feet of whatever the fuck is happening with these characters. And like the action 
actual romantic interest is like clearly that's the escape you're like hold on brother like this and these these th- this movie ends on two different uh you know couples like holding each mm-hmm. other and yes. you're like very much like that's that and you want them to do that you're like please do not go back to whatever it is that you were doing do not go back to the job back to the work and it feels but, like oh go ahead oh and i was just it, it feels as if in those moments that's where he slows down and focuses and he's just like like it, it feels like those characters are finally being able to like just breathe again a little bit like he he slows down when they look at each other in the speedboat and then they get to the the club and they start dancing together and then they make love and then they go back like it takes its time whereas a lot of this most when they're doing their work is just like going from one person to the next screaming at each other trying to act as tough as possible so they don't get killed or found out um, you know, t- t- telling their their higher ups how much of a fuck up they are because they're they're destroying like uh, they're they're giving them bad intel that kind of stuff and it's just go go go. But in those moments where you know that they're able to stop and like make love or or feel love in any way, um, he, he he takes his time with it and uh, it's it's really great. It's very expressive. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I like that you basically get all of that again, like very early on, because for by the way, there's there's two different cuts of this film and we're not going to yeah. get too deep into which ones you should be watching. You should probably just be watching the theatrical cut. That's what that is I mostly watched, beca- yeah. Especially yeah, that was what I recommended Jamie to watch yes. as well, just because the director's cut does have some cool stuff in it. And it's a great cut to go to after you've seen the film, because there is actually there's only two choices in it I don't like, and the rest of the choices in it are great and actually just expand the romances. They're basically just oh, cool. more additional scenes between um, Sonny and Isabella and between uh, Fox and Naomi Harris's See, character. There's just I'm, I'm kind of glad to hear. I want to watch the director's cut. The one thing that I did find a little strange with this theatrical, and I, I did find out that there, it seemed like Jamie Foxx was kind of, um, I don't know, difficult to work with in some regards so i'm not sure what happened there but it did feel like compared to how they focus on isabella and sunny that that um is it i think trudy and rico their names uh they get a little underserved until the end which they use to a a great degree but it it just felt like uh that you you know you have that passionate scene with them in the beginning and then it feels very much focused on sunny for the remainder of the time which don't get me wrong i i love sunny and i love this colin farrell uh performance um but just by the end it feels a little undercooked on jamie fox's part yeah so so that was the stuff that they made him cut for the theatrical but they also in order to quicken things, they did something that I don't know why, how a studio came. Like, it's almost an experimental opening. Like, I don't know how they were the ones who came to the conclusion they should do this, but they cut the very, like, moody credit sequence, which is them riding the go-fast boats and the yeah. cameras, like, rising from the Florida waves to see the boats, like, practically running over the lens. It's, like, a really cool scene, like, outside of the context of you know, the theatrical in order to cut three or four minutes out of the film, they were like, yeah, let's just get straight into the action. And it's one of the most important choices for the film, I think, because it just skips any sort of grounding or setup or credits or fade in or any chance for you to find your footing as an audience member and just experimentally is like smash cut straight to silhouetted dancer framed against the neon lit screen in the club. The first beat drop Linkin Park and Jay-Z encore, uh, numb encore mashup. 
And it's an amazing bit of like in media res, like whiplash that I think serves the movie's depiction of one always being on the job, but also being in this like alternate kind of like dream world in a way, because dreams never really have like they don't have opening credits or like a setup (laughs) or, you know, they just just happen. Yeah. And the wordless sort of you're just dropped into the confusion and violence and sort of tactical operation of this world, but done in this very subjective, you know, sort of immersion impression, like sort of series of impressions almost where you just walk with these characters. Like Jamie was highlighting how you're in the club and, you know, you just like see all of these sea of hands, like just beneath the lens and these characters very intensely watching their targets who are trafficking these girls over this various sort of like abstract of dancing bodies and you know Farrell ordering his mojito that he's a fiend for there and you know getting a little (laughs) bit of the flirting in and the club music is just pounding and chaotic and the 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 lighting is just so like excessive and insane and then that stuff is immediately interrupted like this is my favorite aspect is like this job that they are doing that they're trying to take down this human trafficker is basically interrupted within 30 seconds and they're like cut yep. that job they get a phone call from john hawks's character who is a hmm. previous contact named alonzo stevens who's an old informant of theirs who's been turned and is scared for his family's life and is calling them saying i didn't give you guys up but i you know shit is going crazy i need to get home to my family and there's like these sudden cuts to these like lurching dutch angle shots of like these real cars driving super fast and like the 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 ferraris that they're driving everything to have this like flaming blue exhaust coming out of them which i've read is real and only <laughs> happens on that model of car if you are genuinely pushing it to its limit. So, like, that's awesome. what they're really doing on these cameras, um, driving down the freeway. But then you get, like, Farrell and Fox on the rooftop of this club, and you get your first shot of yes. that Miami sky and just, like, the pixelated hazy smear of a sky with the deep focus photography so you see every detail of it and like the lights behind them and them in their suits and they get this macho conversation they're having which is so sick where they're like hey clearly something's gone wrong with this contact that we gave up and i love the editing in this where again it's it's all of a sudden sharply cutting to alonzo in his car like freaking out driving away like the intensity of his speed and then you get jamie fox on the phone right beside um colin farrell and they're both making calls immediately like he's calling and being like hey something's going wrong with your contact and he's trying to call his family and you just get those like brief shots of like that shirtless butcher like hearing the phone ring and like his massacred Mm -hmm. family like on the floor like this is your introduction to this like you don't know again it's completely wordless it's all through vision and mood that you are picking up that some deal has gone wrong this guy is freaking out his family has already been murdered And, you know, the guy on the one line who's meant to be kind of like the bureaucrat, they're like, how do I discuss this over an open phone line? He's like, how the hell do I know? We got the call on an open line. And that is the hand that we have been dealt at 1147 o'clock on a Saturday night. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's the line. You're either with the movie or you're not at that point once he says that. Yeah, like either either you think that is fucking sick and you are moved by these brief flashes of just gruesome imagery that you're seeing an implication or yeah, or it's not for you. So you'll know 
<laughs> and I, exactly. yeah, and it, and it also says a lot about just their job in general, where it's like, this was the hand that we were dealt with. We didn't come into this knowing this was going to happen, but now we have to improvise. It's, it's just constantly. It is going bad, and it sounds like it is going bad right now. Yeah, Darwin, it's just Ching, constantly shit happens, man. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they're just always like on their toes. Collateral. Yeah, I love that this is not an origin story, which is the much more boring version of this movie, right? Yes. If, if they just like, how did they we, meet? Like, well, we already saw that. We saw we the We already saw that. We don't need that. And this is immediately, I love that it's just they accidentally created the best opening to any movie. Because <laughs> it's like, as, as, as well shot as the uh, director's cut opening, the speedboat opening is, it's so crucial. This just starts with bum, 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 bum. And then you just launched into that shot of just the silhouette. Yeah. And yes. dropped into this world where, like, they're dealing with so much information being given to them, so much they have to react to and respond to. And Farrell and Fox are very good at that, like, intense middle distance staring that they have to do and talking mm-hmm. very curtly, like very few words, because, you know, you yeah. get the feeling that these people have worked together. They don't need to talk to each other. They move through their worlds very confidently. They know each other. You know, like he doesn't need for him to get off the phone and deliver him exposition. Jamie Foxx is already yeah. on the phone calling the family, trying to figure out what's going on over and there. And it's cross cutting between these two things, right? Like they are feeling each other out. They know the moves. They know the no, counter moves like preparation scenes where they're just like, and this is how you're going to talk to this guy. And this is how you're going to talk to this guy. They're just like they've been doing it for so many years that we don't need that. They just go into the into the the rooms. They discuss the drug deals. They they talk to who they need to talk to. And, you know, they're just that good at it. it, it it's become yeah. just a part of their lives. Yeah, so it's, it's obviously incredibly skilled and thrilling in one moment, but then it's also incredibly scary in the other because this is yeah. the pace they have to work at to keep up with the things that they are, you know, trying to deal with. So when, you know, again, when they're talking to the other guy on the phone and they're like, yeah, you're meeting, whatever you're doing right now, it's going wrong. And we're already cross-cutting to that dirty meet and greet, like with the Aryan Brotherhood that is going wrong. And you right. just watch these two guys fuck up this deal, expose that they're working with the FBI, and they just get the most realistic looking shots of oh, a yeah. Barrett 50 cal shredding a human body and It still steel. makes me flinch. I watched yeah, this yeah. movie many times. That scene in the car, that still makes me flinch. Yeah, and yeah. you see like not just the bodies rip apart, but the entire upholstery just like huge holes and you just know like the back was blown out. They're like it, it's just yeah, it's unbelievably violent. And he even I think slow mows it a little bit just to give you a little extra time with it. <laughs> so <laughs> there's like environmental destruction. I mean the, the 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 sounds in this, the sound design of the guns and the and the bullets hitting, you know, windows so and fucking the loud. cars. Yeah, it's just incredibly loud. Um it's great. It's so realistic. Yeah. It's so grounded in realism, but it, it just it doesn't look like anything you've seen before. So it has that that surreal aspect anyway. It's like mm-hmm. it's it's yeah, it's like that, that slow mo shot of his arm coming off and like the white light rays coming through it. Like oh, you yeah. couldn't stage something more theatrical, but that's just it. It's pure reality, and I think that is like kind of the key to this film is that you you on one level he's showing you something so hyper real that it is genuinely you're like there's no way that this is this is real it's so yeah. it's expressing something so much bigger and than what it is that you're seeing and you you know you get that through image and through the editing especially like when they get to the moment that Jamie was referring to with John Hawks where mm. They find out that, you know, he, uh, you know, he he's the one who gave up the feds who we just saw get just shredded by, you know, sniper fire. But there's this great sequence where they catch up to him in in, you know, on the freeway in the car. They pull him over and they're talking on the side 
of the of the freeway with him. It's incredible scope framing that they do where, you know, you can hear the cars and we're framed so that we're constantly watching them drive by just on the periphery. And he's constantly being like, I got to get to my family like you don't understand. And then the silent cross cutting to like the, you know, the the Miami police like arriving at you know, the house and discovering that, that the family has just been completely massacred. And that delivery that Fox gives of, oh, man. Uh, you don't, you don't need to go home. And it's the so look good. on his face, you know, where he didn't have to say anything else. Like his family has been murdered. They killed his family anyway. And that slow out of focus shot that, that occurs where he's looking at Sonny and Rico. And oh, then he yeah. slowly, it just, the camera pans and drifts like subjectively with his head yeah. as he starts too. looking and the focus too, as he starts looking at the cars and yeah. before he does it, you know that this guy is going to throw himself in front of oncoming traffic and get himself killed. And then, yeah, and, and it's still insanely shocking when he does it. And that truck hits him the, the, the cut away from the audio on the horn of the truck because he couldn't break in time. And the yeah. little fucking blood streak Just underneath the car Just on the pavement. Second. It's that total, split second. I, th- I find that that total lack of like bringing in uh, some, some, over the top sound design like they don't have the the sound of his like body really hitting the truck because you know in that moment it probably wouldn't be much of a sound you have this busy highway it's a semi you know the the, the audio would be kind of um it, like it would be muffled so then just seeing the streak and and just knowing that his body is gone just not there anymore um is it, it's like even more shocking than if they you know had some big yeah. thud or or had the body roll over after or something like that it's just it, it, it's it's devastating it's really well done yeah well and then and then the way that it like you know uh very suddenly like halfway through the streak appearing it cuts away and it cuts away yeah. to them this like huge wide shot of them driving away from this horrifying scene in the two shot where they're framed by like the street lamps and everything like yeah it's that. like so, time and to it move just, on kind of thing too yeah like so. just that moment teaches you how to watch this film you get exactly. a quick psychologically subjective insert shot of this character's point of view you're and and it's a bleak point of view you're watching this character literally stop paying attention to the human beings in front of him and make the decision to throw himself in front of a car. That's what that shot is. Yeah. And then you get the sudden gruesome physical shock of him actually doing that. And then these characters witnessing that and how horrible it must be to see that and see someone do that in front of you. And then bam, it's just back to the work. They're already in the car. They're on the phones figuring out what the fuck just happened. And that's the opening 20 minutes of this film. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's that's so it. Of- it's so effective because by the time you realize what just happened, it's over. And that's the whole yeah. movie. Like, that's their relationships, too. That's going to be what happens with uh, with Sonny and with Gong Lee. And that's it yeah, happens yeah. in the in the club, too. Just that little brief flirtation he has with the waitress. And then they grin at each other. And then he pays for his drink. And that's it. And like you were saying, with the, the little plot with um, uh, Neptune, the, the, the crook hmm. thereafter. Like they just say his day will come. Like they say he's going to come back at the end of that first uh, episode of the show. And then they get the phone call that changes everything. And they just immediately moved on from that. And I love that the only the only reason that this movie happens at all and the only reason they get involved in this plot is because this guy Alonzo remembers them as being decent guys. Like you being like, you know, yeah, you treated me like a person you cared about my family. So everything is going to shit. And even though this has nothing to do with you, I'm pulling you in because I can trust you to know this is important and take care of my wife, even though she's dead. 
Like that's the yeah, only yeah. reason they get involved. It's not because they get assigned to a case or because they stumble into something while pursuing another lead. It's the they made this connection in this world that seems to run on networks with no connections. That was special, mm-hmm. and that's that leads into everything. Yeah, yeah, that's spot on. That's spot on. Yeah, that's exactly what. And and then their sense of kind of loyalty to like that was a deep connection that means something so we need to commit to that like that's why they they decide to do this whole thing when they go you know we turned this guy over to you and very clearly you worked him poorly like like you guys hugely fucked up trying to take down this uh, Colombian dealer who they think is named Jose Arrow, played by John Ort- Ortiz who's great he's a, like, an incredibly bookish yet intimidating sort of counter intel guy but he's actually um just the the sort of underling to the actual big kingpin of the sort of international global drug trade which is something that you know man spent a lot of time researching because he said that was a huge difference between when he did Miami Vice and this is that obviously it had become more of a hugely geopolitical endeavor um, in a way that it previously wasn't, which was something he wanted to explore, which is why he has his his Miami police detectives made uh, like uh, deputized as federal uh, law members yeah. <laughs> in like the first like 25 minutes of the movie. He's like, OK, now these guys can go anywhere. And I think that was a huge th- thing for people. People were like, why does this movie not take place in Miami? Uh, like yeah. immediately they're going to like the Dominican Republic and they're going to like Paraguay. <laughs> and then, like right. they're, um <laughs> Or like in the that middle of three countries, that's where one scene takes place, right? It's like on the tri-border between... Yeah, it's basically Paraguay Miami Vice's version of Casablanca. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's what. And in the middle of all that, that's why that, that line from Jamie Foxx, you said it's so emotional. You don't have to go home. It's like in, in that kind of network, you can't. There is no home anymore. There is no center. There is no one boss who's in charge of the organization because there's a guy behind him and a guy behind him. And there's just yeah, well, and, yeah, and this has become man's like late period interest, right? Like it's all yep. you see it a lot in Public Enemies, you see it a lot in Black Hat as well. Like this whole idea of you know we've created these new machine networks of almost sort of inhuman behavior, but like people still need to move within them and operate within them. And how do you react to that? And how do you you know become one with these buildings that now basically look like computer hardware all around you and like basically operate with the same lizard brain? as them and just moving money everywhere and yeah so you have these very sort of you know uh romantic characters then operating within that world and that becomes a huge question is then how do you how do you depict something like that right like that and that to me is you know again where all of the filmmaking just you know comes in like the clearly liberated improvised or like digital handheld photography you know the way that it can get dangerously close in proximity to this world and then occasionally sort of like abstract it and blow it out with the natural lighting the lighting is a huge thing because he doesn't need to bring lighting setups with him everywhere or bring studio lights anywhere like yeah. this movie is lit by the actual sky the actual street lamps the actual things that yeah. these characters move around which makes it very authentic in that way but then the framing like he'll do this crazy scope negative space heavy framing frequently like facing away from where the characters are even looking like they're being pulled back because of the intense speed that they're looking at then he'll do the liquid editing pattern shit where he condenses this like sprawling character narrative into this thing that like is always collapsing into each other like all the time in an uncontrollable way that these characters then have to kind of respond to and it's crazy that like 
what he is depicting, if you were to describe the plot, like it's not really that complicated. I mean, like it is in a technical jargon kind of way, but like in the idea mm-hmm. of like they need to infiltrate this guy. So they find out that, you know, he's getting these boat shipments coming in. So they're like, hey, I guess we will just go fuck up those those go fast boat riders and start you know, uh, transporting the money for this guy instead. Like that's the decision they make, but that's depicted through like this insane sequence of like night vision photography and like radars and shipping barges and underpasses like lit by the real street lamp haze. And then like POV shots of the back of trucks breaking into warehouses as they're like throwing grenades and shit. Like the 360 degree shot of Colin, like tearing his mask off and stuff like it's just you the speed at which the filmmaking moves is is to a point where it's like delirious and disorienting at times but it it, it's the fact that these characters can somehow make logical steps with steps within that world that is like the impressive part yeah because even that is used later on um where you think like you know they're they're getting the drugs to bring them in or, or something like that but really they use it and they set it up as something like we found this for you and we're gonna we're willingly giving it back to you for nothing to almost like prove our loyalty to continue the big deals that we're getting from you mm-hmm. um and i just love that it's all even in that moment you're not quite sure yet i don't think um but it becomes something that you realize was entirely an act i mean even the actions they're taking uh, and then the, the I love also the scene that that ha- that happens a little later on when they show them the stuff and, you know, they walk into this empty like house that is kind of just abandoned. But all the cops are, you know, acting all thuggy and, and you know, holding the guns and just acting as tough as they possibly can to kind of give this facade to the the drug dealer. I think his name is Jose. Um, mm-hmm. The first one. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jose, Jose Yero. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I just love that that leads into something that you realize has been an act the entire time. And they, they do that multiple times throughout the film. It's kind of, well, yeah, I mean, man, man has always admitted bit. that, that the, uh, the undercover aspect was the part that always drew him to yeah. this material. And even when he originally did the, the first show, because there was this idea that the identity crisis was the thing that he really felt deeply about, like the fact that these guys train like actors do, like when they first have the intimate sex scenes that they have, like, like Jamie Foxx and Naomi Harris have when they, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the deal all goes wrong and they finally go back to their, their little safe house that they have. And, you know, immediately after this like intimate sex scene that the two characters have, they're sitting at the table in like this very unfurnished like apartment and they immediately go, who are we? And they start being given their criminal identities that they're going to be using to trick the targets and everything like that. And I know that uh, man went super hard on the undercover research for this one, because, again, he's always had like that sort of journalistic. I need to depict something, uh, you know, be really authentic, detailed, but also, you know, have like the tech fetish, the tech fetish, like with Thief, like the focus on the tools and the equipment and how people work them. And with this, the tools that these characters have is their performances in the way that they pitch themselves and with that he had feral i think i've told you this once on the show <laughs> before this, he had yeah. feral doing undercover training for <laughs> the film where they they literally had him believe that he was you know going to 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 a real sting and they completely staged it but briefly he thinks that the guys on the other side of the table are real dealers and real dealers who think that they're they're cops and that he's yeah. a cop 
and you can just and there's <laughs> tape if you, if you if you go to the Miami Vice Blu-ray and you look up the behind the scenes you can see footage of this staged thing that they were doing and you can even see the part where Farrell really thinks the deal has gone wrong oh, man. he starts freaking out and he tears his shirt open and he's like do I look wired like, yeah, <laughs> like he's just fucking going nuts well what I like about that it, like translating to the film um, is all of like uh, most of their tactics when they are trying to convince the other side that they're not cops is to almost accuse them of being cops like they start to yes. use certain things where they're like um, you know you said this a certain way or I, I saw this c- c- walking into the, the place that we're making the deal and it's just like I don't we know. don't audition for business business auditions for us yeah. like are, who are you who are you working for yeah, why, exactly. why do you need to know more about us is there anything about us you couldn't have found on your computer why don't i believe that <laughs> yeah exactly and so they just flip it on them and, and then what it's doing is it's kind of like it's making them sell to the cops and it, it's um it, it's it's just really entertaining to watch especially the the multiple times that they do it with uh, jose yeah i think i think I, I was listening to man talk about it. i think he described it as like he he liked the idea of people becoming like taking real traits that they have themselves but then applying it into this like supra version of themselves mm-hmm. where you know they, they they prepare with the script and the character and the focus of an actor and but at the same time they have to like become this bigger larger than life cell uh, almost to another person in order to extract information from that you know from those people and i think it, there's like this basically that's what he describes as the high like this elevated yeah. experience of like you f- being so convincingly walking in this alternate world where you're a different person, almost like you're in a dream, but believing it and believing it so intensely that other people are believing it. And like, and and at a certain point, then that's real. Like that's just you living life. Now you're just living as this thing that you're pretending to be at a certain point. And that contradiction, which was the subject of the original show in some ways, I think that man just took that and like that is I'm going to stylistically explore that to the the like the depths that I could like how could mm-hmm. these very you know people who are putting on these fabricated identities, these fake people and names that they don't know and having more intense romantic connections than they actually have in their real life yeah. in a way. Yeah, and then, and then how that would be troublesome to their psychologies <laughs> and the kind of the damage that would do to you when you're doing that in like such an ugly, gruesome, you know, occupation. Yeah. And there's and there's there's moments of it where you, you see them realizing, but they're very, very quick. Like one that I remember is when he's in the shower after he's just had sex with uh, Isabella. And there's this moment of him just going completely dead eyed and almost like disassociating or something. And then as soon as he sees her again, it's like, oh, I'm back. I'm the character. I'm in love with you. All of all of that. And then there's another moment later on when he's really starting to feel the weight of of how deep he's going, um, where he's I think he's he's in like a parking lot and he gets a call from I believe it's Jose. And uh, and he he answers with almost like a slightly higher pitched voice. It's still very, you know, it's sunny and it's Colin Farrell. So it's still got that grit to it, but he's not playing the character yet. And as soon as he realizes who he's talking to, he's just like, you listen here, Padre, like, here we go. And he he like starts to do his like little walk that he does and his shoulders get up a little more and he he pumps his chest out. Like he, he does become just an exaggerated uh, part of who he actually is in a sense, but it is a character that he has to channel. 
those little breaks are so interesting and they come, mm-hmm. they start coming more frequently as you go. There's the great early one when they're talking to their, their guy, Nicholas, their informant. They tell him somebody, something's got to go somewhere, somewhere. We, mm-hmm. you know, just keep, keeping <laughs> things line. as vague as possible, but everything's always on the move and they go. Yeah. To while, his... while staring out at the ocean and feeling exactly. things, of course. As <laughs> they, yeah. That's the do. moment yeah, when they're in this apartment, Man, also like basically unfurnished, basically, you know, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing in these people's lives. Well, yeah. And he literally stops paying attention to the conversation and like he, it fades away as he looks out at this like elemental liberating force that's been in, you know, every one of his films. You yeah. can see him lose interest in the plot and just his, his gaze just wanders away. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's the, it's the same thing in heat when he comes home and the famous shot where he's got the gun on the table it's the same yep. thing with jamie fox and his little his postcard picture of the island that he takes breaks on throughout the day manhunter yep. starting on the beach but it's this yep. but this is one of the my favorite of those moments because it's so inexplicable and just comes and goes and you just get the sense of this is oh for this one moment suddenly it was like oh right i'm a person with a soul and anyway mm-hmm. where was i <laughs> Back to back. Yeah, back back, back to uh, work, brutally working these contacts that I'm probably going to get killed. Right, yeah. <laughs> or what they tell him, like, that, you know, uh, Jamie Foxx claps and he's like, that's the sound of the air filling the space left behind by your rapidly departing body or something like yeah. that. But none of these, you're, you're all fungible. You can be replaced. Things move quicker than your feelings or your desires. And then, yeah, then we get the little intimate scene with uh, with Rico and Trudy in the shower and their obvious body doubles, which always makes me laugh. When it yes. cuts, cuts below the head and it's the muscly bodies, but it's great. And they get the, the little sex scene. I love the bit where he pretends to have prematurely come. And he's yes. like, oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. That's I'm just such a sweet, that's, a, that's such a sweet little thing that like most movies wouldn't have time for in a sex scene. Cause it makes the scene go on longer, ironically. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it's just, it's so revealing of character. And it's like, there, there are the people, the actual human beings when no one's watching and you're not on the job. And then, yeah, like you said, it cuts to, same fabricated fundamentals as before, I think Trudy says. Like, here are your yes. layers, layers of fake selves, because they're, the crooks are going to know that you are lying. So we've given you another fake identity beneath the first fake identity. So when they break yes. through, which is one of the best details. You. Like yes. that's, you have to keep that all straight in your head all the time. Yes, yep. that you, you, are, you are technically at any given moment playing two or three different people. And one of those peoples you assume is yourself again, or a version of yourself. <laughs> yeah. Like, like the, the identity aspect I think is so much more thoroughly explored in, in the film and yeah. just because of the disorienting style of it, like really applies itself to that experience. Like you, as a, as a, as a sensory audience member, I think you do start living in the waking dream that someone who identifies as three different people would. And then you get them operating, though, in these incredibly intensely real worlds, which is my favorite detail, because man is always incredible at production design and location work. But this is one of my favorites because the Paraguay stuff that they do here with like the chipped pastel like art walls and the telephone wires framed like this like creepy webbing over top of them and yeah. like the, the the gunshots in the buildings that are crumbling the ad billboards that look like spying eyes out of like Blade Runner yes. or something which is a shot he repeats in uh, Black Hat mm-hmm. and you get moments like that where they're wandering through just just like you know this 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 place that you know fills them with paranoia and disturbance and then you get you know moments where you know like obviously you know they're they're kind of scared in in that sort of milieu but then this world opens them up to the more majestic 
stuff like the massive wide angle cloud shots of like the flying Gulf Stream jet that almost look like a Western rock formation vista as they're like mm-hmm. flying over the Dominican jungle or the giant, obviously iconic uh, Cuba boat sequence where Pharaoh oh, yeah. and Gong Li like basically, you know, they they kind of hit it off in their moment and he sees an opportunity to, you know, maybe get deeper into their partnership because they kind of as we kind of talked about a little bit, like with Yero, they immediately get into like a pissing contest with him. And so they're like, this guy is probably he's suspicious of us. He's probably not our in to get deeper. So they instead choose Gong Li because she seems more sensitive. She seems kind of more open. And obviously Gong Li incredible actress um, yeah. raised the red lantern 2046 by Wong Kar Wai. Speaking of, I mentioned Wong Kar Wai earlier, incredible actress and just seeing just one of the most like beautiful actresses of her time, just like rocking these criminal enterprise, like power suits yeah. and just going in these like crazy, uh, go fast boat rides with Colin Farrell while this like lush melancholic version of like one of these mornings by Moby is playing And just that huge fucking wide shot where that water literally looks like it never ends. They look like they're on like a different planet in that shot. I love the moment too, where, and and it kind of translates later on when he starts talking about, it's like, if you, if it, if that, that man, um, uh, tour the big Montoya, um, was really your husband. Like he wouldn't put you in so much danger. And then multiple times you see these little images of him, like trying to, you know, bring some type of safety to her life. I think at one point he puts the strapping her on the boat her in the, yeah. yeah, in the speedboat, And he's just like, her, that's kind of like his first sign of like, he wants to take care of her. Um, and then, you know, it, it continues from there, but I just, I love these small little moments that, that lead into something much deeper. Um, and I also like how quickly he decides to just like start pursuing this. It's very much in line with everything oh, yeah. else that he's doing where it's like these quick decisions it's that so are impulsive. based on death. And yeah, but it's, yeah, exactly. It's incredibly impulsive. He's just like, you should see how fast my boat goes. I'm a fiend for mojitos. Let's get this going. Like it's, Iconic it's just, line, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievably good. Um, so yeah, I and, just, and, I and love her just going, I know a place. That's all that needs to be said. Like these people yeah. operate in a world of so few, few words. Yes. I'm a yeah. fiend for mojitos. I know a place. Now we're in a boat. Now we're taking off. And that's <laughs> yeah. it. And they're she's, incredibly she's doing because they have to be to survive. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, they're, yeah. they're immediately like feeling each other out in like even their immediate like sort of like expository. Like, who are you? Who am I? She's like, you know, I'm a businesswoman. I don't need a husband for a house to live in. Mm-hmm. And that's all she needs to say. You know, they're off on a date. She's running her fingers through her hair like Don Johnson is in the in the air tonight uh, sequence from the pilot. Yeah. You know, you know, just the the massive wide shots. They eventually get to Cuba and do this like incredible Latin ballroom dancing which I know that man made Farrell do like hours and hours of lessons because ballroom <laughs> dancing is fucking hard. I mean, yeah. like I've never done it, but I've, I know people who've done it and it is, it is like, it is not the kind of dancing that is very easy to just like pick up. Like you need to train at it. And I know that man can, can do it a little bit, which I think nice. partially why he did it. There's actually behind the scenes footage of him just in the, in the outtakes, just like dancing with Gong Lee, like doing the <laughs> dancing that Colin Farrell's supposed to be Showing doing. Farrell. What's up? Um, 
Yep. <laughs> the same way that uh, Colin Farrell is uh, cucking Jose Arrow a little bit. Yeah. Which it's, so, it's so funny that that's man. the huge dramatic arc of this is just like a petty cucking scenario. Like that's yeah. what really upsets him. <laughs> exactly. Again, it's a romance disguised as an action movie. Like that. that's why the final yes. shootout happens. It's really not actually about the FBI versus the cartel or anything of that anymore. It's about these two guys and their, their, their smoldering resentment that they have. But yeah, I love the the Wong Kar Wai comparison is great. That's what a lot of this feels like is that that disorienting yeah. market scene feels like Chunking Express or there's yep. there's that line in Chunking Express. I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but it's like at the, the height of our intimacy, we were only a millimeter away from each other or something like that. When two people are just like racing past each other on the streets and it's like that's as close as we ever right. were. That same yeah. melancholy sense of everything. It, this, it's just too big and too fast and too confusing. And the moments we find with each other are really meaningful where everything slows down and but it's, like this is the stuff that, if, that matters but it's and if so too real um it, it, people see right through it in this in this this place like this place that they're in this 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 these drug life um like as soon as jose realizes that this isn't just them having sex like they're falling for each other instantly he, he's like this is far too real for this line of work you, you must be in on it in some way things are getting too complicated that's when he ends up telling montoya about it and showing him like the the, the footage of them dancing and he's just like this is not just some fling Cl- clearly that they're falling for one another because um, i have eyes yeah, everywhere, like he says yeah yes yeah. i love the focus on like screens and surveillance and like that would become like a huge part of you know like he would do a ton of that in black hat public enemies as well has a lot of like the rise of the surveillance state is like a the huge subject of that and just the way that he gets these characters watching it's like sometimes it's through the night vision sometimes it's through the computer screen sometimes you just get like point of view shots attached to cars or boats or helicopters that are like lit naturally by the dashboard lights and the city skyscrapers and the neon smog and everything like that um like all of that you know stuff is just again it's the, the the creeping modern you know um inhuman world that you know resists this form of connection that this connection can't exist within because it's not good for uh you know it's not good for the money it's not good for the profits it's not the kind of thing that you know it's not the way that that we should be organizing ourselves because he's not upset that she has sex with him she's he's like that's a great tactic use that to control him in a way but Mm -hmm. jamie's right like as as soon as it becomes clear that you know there is actual intimacy taking place which we are you know we see here with like the sex scene that they have together where they're literally just like staring into each other's souls and then staring out at the ocean and and before montoya doesn't really even care because he knows that they've had sex with one another uh uh, isabella just straight up tells him and she does that in like a more strategic sense i believe um, yeah. but, but it, you know, it's still a moment where you realize that this guy doesn't really have that kind of connection with her. He sees her more as like someone he can control. Um, and up to that point until he realizes that it's actually love, he doesn't care at all. And he's just like, well, we'll just continue the deal. Like they can have their fun and we'll make millions of dollars. Who cares? Um, but it's, yeah, it's that moment of, of when they feel something real is that it all falls apart. That might be a betrayal and that's when it becomes much more personal. Yeah. And it's, it's, Messy. it's. And then within those, within that context, with those personal stakes, it, you know, the, the state and the cartel kind of become the same thing and they kind of become just these systems that won't let you be a person. And yeah. the, the politics yeah. of this one are not as central as something like the insider, obviously, or even thief with its, its extremely, uh, blunt metaphors. 
But you were saying earlier, Josh, about I'm how, a union, I'm wearing it. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> which I love. But you were saying earlier, Josh, Great about line. how there's the, the, the background research that went into collateral, into Vincent Collateral and his potential kind of Cold War narco background. And that is on the fringes of this, too, when they, they go to yeah. meet the man, when they go to meet Montoya. And they realize that their phones are being jammed and that this is this is basically also kind of a war movie. I love movie the huge the brick skin. phones, by the way. We should yes. go back to them. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We have ass. to go back. A better world. But yeah, they see yeah. this is like like this is Baghdad now. Like this is the technology we have just wandered into. And yeah. and like that this is a world where being a cop and being a soldier and and being the the guy who fights the soldiers are all kind of the same job. Yeah. And, 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 and everyone is pretending to be someone else and everyone is not exactly sure, sure who the other people are. You're all just kind of all feeling each other out and is like, who means anything? And why are like, yeah. this is definitely one of the most futile depictions of the war on drugs. Yep. Because yeah. it's like, there's no, nothing gets all. accomplished here. <laughs> and, and all of the violence that's dealt out is like completely sudden and random and pointless. And again, the final stuff when it when it comes back and it does a repeat sort of a cyclical we come back to the underpass stuff which we'll get to in the finale it's again it's all just because of this slight petty you know uh love triangle that the one character sees that none of the other characters see and yeah like that's what eventually like derails this in this entire like system that's meant to be an efficient money thing right like they figure out yeah. so many of these cool tactics and he depicts the tactics too like there's one great moment where he shows you like cool updated versions of what actual criminals were doing like the bit where they're flying the planes and there's two blips on the radar because they're flying two planes side by side oh, yeah. and then they actually do this really cool technique where the one plane goes right on top of the other one and they merge the blip on the radar so two planes can fly you know, uh, by two good pilots and look like one plane. And then all of a sudden they can in, they can bring more cargo in, um, without, uh, without being noticed that that's what they're actually doing. So you, you get invested in like these characters are, you know, making hugely important sort of tactical decisions, but at the same time, they're tied to these identity crises that they like, like, are they too deep? Like, I love the moment when, you know, they start being asked, are they in too deep? Like, is this shit with Isabella? Are you just like on a vacation fling with this woman? Yeah. Or are you actually driving this somewhere? Like, is there a point to this? And there's this very macho dialogue that you got to love with with man sometimes where he's like, I know undercover requires some aggressive outlaw bullshit. And the 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 one guy stops in there to like stop talking shit about his agents. And he's like, hey, slick, don't try to shine me on. <laughs> and. They immediately say, you know, I believe that let Sonny and Rico cook, let them do their thing. There's a reason they, you know, they're the best. But even Rico, he backs him up in that conversation. One hundred percent. I'm with yeah. Sonny. I love and then line. he w w when they get to the to the actual like j it's those two alone. Yeah. He's like, what's going on, dude? Like you are acting crazy. You are acting emotional and bigger than I've seen you. And he's basically like, there's undercover and there's which way is up like and yeah. and which which is a, obviously a great description of the feelings that we've had watching this film, like in the in the opening, when you get in dro dropped into this movie, you are like, which way is fucking up? This camera is going everywhere. I don't know what's happening. And he says, you think I'm I'm in so deep that I forgot. And Jamie yeah. Foxx just gets one very curt one very moody i love it i will never doubt you 
Yes. I will never doubt you. That is the, the you know, he's just like, if you say this bump in the boys. Yeah, I will believe you. <laughs> like, that's all you need to say. That's it. Yeah. I'm 100% with you. Cut to that fucking sick, massive, heavy guitar riff, that like Mogwai uh-huh. guitar riff over the beautiful, like misty Dominican jungle yeah. and like the waterfalls and everything. Like, just again, like that line. So to good. smash cut to that from that line like it, it has an impact on you like that's how huge that moment is between these characters like Jamie Foxx isn't like crying his eyes out and saying how much he cares about him but the filmmaking is telling you that that is the depth of these characters feelings like that is the depth of his loyalty yeah yeah whether yeah, they want to express it, 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 it they don't need to it's, hug. It, it's, <laughs> it's a massive natural thing like a fucking waterfall in Colombia. <laughs> yeah yeah and it's what they can't express and, like i love uh, isabella's line uh to montoya i like businessmen who are competent because you can predict their behavior like that's mm-hmm. that's the goal for both yes. of these sides here is they want predictability reliability and all these messy human emotions are just fucking that up they're getting in the way of business and neither the cops nor the cartel can have any room for that they don't have any room mm-hmm. for a beautiful sex scene set in a limo set to audio slave. There's just no room for romance yeah. in this world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That stuff is so funny too. Like the way that she gets out of the plane and they get into the limo <laughs> and they're like, they they're like, yeah, we're having a other. real business meeting. And then they just start tearing each other's fucking clothes off. And like, they can't even do it fast enough. The camera can't even keep up with how fast yeah. they're like ripping each other's clothes off. It's another, amazing. Another great part is when they're at the, uh, the, the giant ship and doing all the like uh, drug transportation. And she actually stands up on the back seat just to like wave and smile and see uh, Sunny. And Sunny just gives her like a little bit of like a, a little kissy face and a head nod or whatever. It's like yeah. at a certain point, they're not even really trying to keep it a secret. I mean, if anyone with brains saw that across the way, I'd be like, those those people are definitely falling for each other. Um, well, no, and, and, and he's barely coding his like, things are about to go wrong to her, right? Like yeah. in that bit where he's just like, things go wrong, odds catch up, probability is like gravity, and you can't negotiate with gravity. Like you yeah. should you should cash out. You should cash out right now. I'm not going to say why, you know, (laughs) but if I were you, I would think about cashing out. And she obviously gets to deliver her like really, really important line and basically is the motto of man's entire career. You know, life live now. Life is short. Time is luck. Yeah, Yeah, that's the thesis statement of the whole thing for sure. And that's like you said, that's not just in the story, but that's reflected in the style that you're trying to keep up the whole movie. And sometimes you don't even know what you're looking at, but you have to react. And so do they. You you have to live in these moments of slowed down, real human connection that you form no matter kind of like where they came to you and everything around you is going to try and like strip that from you like that just can't exist in this crumbling modern world of just like brutality and ugliness and yeah, whatever you can find like life is short go for it like whatever time you can get being in love with this woman you really gotta fucking take it and, yeah. and it's funny that they're like they're straight up saying this to each other like they they can you can tell they feel something is gonna go wrong like this can't last this is it's it's inherently a fleeting ethereal experience in the same way that everything that the photography and editing has has told us it is and so we're already clued into it. It's the characters, I think, who very messily kind of have to have to learn this thing. They almost don't they almost don't want to believe it in a way. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, everything just fucking goes wrong. And when it goes wrong, man, it is ugly. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Horrifying. Like there's two fantastic but just really gruesome action sequences in this that, again, are completely deglamorized and could not be further from, like, 80s action macho-ness. Like, they are just mean and and ugly in, like, the worst ways. The first one is Yero getting really upset about this relationship between, obviously, Sonny and Isabella, decides that he is going to use the uh, neo-Nazis from the opening who have been who are their dealers who they've been transporting drugs to and trying to get involved in that process, get in the middle of that process. Um, He's going to use them as a tool to start funding uh, fucking with Sonny and Rico personally. So he Mm -hmm. takes Naomi Harris's character, Trudy, who we've previously seen kind of helping them form their identities and is obviously in a very close relationship with with Rico. And they take her hostage in a really horrifying, like trailer park torture setup where they have her like blindfolded. They're like filming her to prove like they're going to do like a snuff video of it. They put this explosive necklace around her neck. And I I do love that even she like is someone who thinks very smart and tactically when she immediately, even with the blindfold, there's this great moment where you can hear the planes taking off near her and she figures that out. So when they place the call, which is, playing today like uh the contemporary news for them so that they can prove that whatever they're about to hear is happening right now and then they put her on the phone to be like yeah we're gonna torture her or kill her like right now essentially uh she immediately gets to be like they're fucking trailer trash they're near an airport like (laughs) you know like she did very very quick-witted and tactical in that way but still very just the the texture of it and the look of it like the greens and everything i I don't know what it is i find this sequence like just very unsettling and just the way that it looks it's very nightmarish. I also um, really think the the coldness of how they deliver the phone call is just terrifying. Like it's that uh, it's that bald Nazi with the with the goatee, and he's just kind of yeah. like he's just saying everything very matter of factly. And I think he says he's like, "You fuck up, we fuck her up," and it's just like yep, without it. it's just completely cold, and there's and there's no real emotion involved. And he might man afterwards even kind of focuses on his face after he hangs up the call and he's just dead eyed and just chewing gum completely apathetically. There's just something very terrifying about how like just these guys are used to doing business this way. And they've probably done this a thousand times. Um, well, and, and we've been cued in, right? Because th- yeah. these are the same guys who massacred John yes. Hawks's family at the beginning who we, who we previously yeah. only heard, uh, listening to the phone ringing and not answering it. But now we actually get on the phone with them and they still have basically nothing to say other than like, yeah, we're going to fucking kill her yeah. unless you, you know, unless you d- deliver all of this product to, that yeah, yeah, you know, to Yero's gang. And even yeah. this ends up being a setup to see if, if they're real or not, if they're the dealers or if they're cops and what, like what kind of, yeah. um, they're, they're pretty much putting them in a compromised position. And that Aryan Brotherhood guy is just doing it for a discount, right? He says, like, yeah, we'll get yeah. a we'll get a little off their product. He's like the one character in the movie who doesn't have a, any bit of a soul left, who doesn't have someone he's interested in. You know, yeah. even the villain Jose has the love that's driving him on. Montoya has his personal pride that gets activated when he sees even, them dancing. Even the white supremacist uh, people that are in the trailer are a family. Like, They're looking out for I mean? each like, other. They, yeah. <laughs> got, that one yeah. that one bald so, guy. Is the one person yeah, the one in the guy movie, in the car he's who never talks to like another human being, basically. Yeah, it's just business. <laughs> yeah, but but which results in you know Sonny and Rico having to abandon like at the at, at the time that they get this call, like they are doing this really 
cool designed like nighttime cargo shipping boat um, sort of sequence where they are, you know, taking all the product and they're like throwing it, you know, throwing the product down the wires onto these individual boats that they're going to take from to the different areas. And again, really awesome sort of like nighttime photography of them eventually when they get that call having to get on the speedboats. Yeah. And have like the headsets and the mics on, and it, it is like the nighttime boat ride chase thing that we saw at the beginning of um, the 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 pilot. But that now taken to this again, this sort of like fuzzy, pixelated, you know, uh, sort of dream world quality as they're moving. But they're moving with the intensity of like, you know, we need to, you know, like someone that we have a real connection to is under threat. And yeah. that takes over everything else. So this like very mournful piano comes yes. over yeah. and they lead this crazy tactical raid on this trailer park with the rifles and the vests and just everything about like how their figures are silhouetted against the, the green ground yeah. and the orange sky. Like there's so much grimy texture to the location and they just start taking people down, like crushing necks with their knees, like breaking the Nazi kid's face at one point yeah. when, when, okay. when Jamie Foxx, you get this super intense abstracted close up of his mm. face as he's like looking super intensely. And this guy charges towards him and it breaks that shot for a moment so that he can take the exacto knife from him shove it into his fucking torso and then push him back down before he resumes the position that he was in with the same camera position too the same camera position yeah and then he breaks it one more time to just execute that guy on the floor and then he's back in that zone again like it's just it's crazy watching like him very clearly try to suppress real rage and intensity and feelings and he's like i need to be acting tactically and then in those few moments where he decides to break that you know sort of a sternness for a second and he just absolutely goes like fucking horror mode on this Mm -hmm. kid and and you know the camera just goes crazy with the wide angle lensing and the movement and everything and yeah it's really crazy because again you feel that what we were feeling in the pilot a little bit you feel that repression Mm -hmm. you feel this like you know they they need to stifle that that's part of what the job is but how do you do that when like the only thing you care about is under threat of being destroyed and it's very likely your fault because i don't remember exactly because i i there's i can't remember if they include the part in the director or in the theatrical but i know it's for sure in the directors the bit where they uh uh, Montoya sends flowers to yeah. Naomi Harris. That's in the director's cut. It's not in the theatrical. That's in the director's cut. That. Okay. Okay. Because yeah, like, like that's, that's a good that, scene to have. Yeah. It is a good scene to have because that's because, what this moment is. Because because like that's what Jamie Foxx is meant to be feeling in this. Like he's meant to be feeling guilty that he caused this. Yeah. Because Mon- Montoya immediately threatens him and says, "I know where you live." He sends flowers to Trudy. Yeah. In. like after the first meet that they have. And that's why this moment is so impactful for him where he's just like, yeah, like he very clearly opened up a passageway to her. Yeah. And now that's what this has resulted in. There is that. I I think, I think you still get that, but it's still, it's awesome. Yeah. There is that one uh, scene where they meet Montoya for the first time where he's just like, I'm going to talk. You're going to listen. This is going to be brief and just gives them the lowdown and then tells them to get the fuck out of there. Um, at yeah. one point he does end it with going like and blessings to your family and it feels incredibly threatening it doesn't feel as yeah. if he's like I give a shit about you because you're now business partners with me it's like by the way we've done our research we know exactly who you're connected to and we will kill them yeah. um, and so it would I, I do like the that thought in the director's cut though I would like to see that but um, I did like that mm-hmm. that 
it, it kind of sets it up in a little way. It's a lot. It's more subtle. It does. I guess, yeah. But it, it's, you, um, you could definitely felt like it was it was blunted and streamlined a little bit, but it's definitely there. Yeah. It's yeah. And it's so definitely. frightening when Montoya says that for the same reason Jamie Fox is so frightening when he shoots those guys because his face doesn't move. Montoya is like yeah. he's still he's got the same expression. It's the same tone of voice. He's staring straight ahead. But without yeah. overly indicating it, he has just demonstrated his willingness to murder everyone you know and love. And, the, the, that's, <laughs> yeah. and that's going to be his work day. And that's yeah. and that's the, that's these people's lives. And there's the bit I, I, I forget the character's name. It's the other woman on the team who's barely in the movie. But the trailer park oh, yeah, scene the ends. Yeah. woman. Yeah, I can't remember her name. And the trailer park scene ends with her like slowly hypnotically describing exactly how she's going to kill this guy. And then yeah. one of the greatest it. parts in the movie. Yeah, it it's is. played by Elizabeth Rodriguez and she's uh, okay. Gina. She's the mm-hmm. uh, detective Gina. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a great moment, too. And I wanted to because you were mentioning that part, too, with um, with Montoya. And I just wanted to throw it in. Do you know, he were I just occurred to me now. He reminds me of uh, Tom Noonan in Manhunter. Yeah, like the way right. that he, oh, okay. he sits and his figure. Yeah, like I prefer, Yeah, he just reminds me of Francis Dollarhide in that moment. That just occurred to me right now. But yeah, the moment that you're talking about where Jamie where um, Elizabeth Rodriguez gets to, you know, in this sort of tactical moment because the guy the nazi threatens he's like you shoot me she dies like that's it like i'm sorry i'm holding the explosives i'm gonna like what do you think's gonna happen here this is over you've killed her and she just goes that's not what that's not what happens but i love that she's repeating it to herself like a like a like an incantation she's like that's not what happens what will happen is what will happen is i will put a round at 2700 feet per second into the medulla at the base of your brain and you will be dead from the neck down before your body knows it your finger won't even twitch only you get (laughs) dead and then she gets her manhunter line so tell me sport do you believe that? <laughs> yeah, so good. And I think he's and, about to yeah, say just something a slow like, zoom in on her you, bitch or whatever. And then I'll, like, yeah. I think he doesn't even get fuck out before she just shoots him right in the head. And dude, <laughs> the blood mist. Have you ever seen blood mist look like this? Oh, it's, it's wild. Huge. Yeah. And it stays I, in the air, I think, because of the the way that the the digital picks up the light. Like oh, that yeah. stays in the air for so much longer than it should. It's like a giant ball of blood mist. Yeah. <laughs> like um, like I you also, said, earlier it looks like sorry go ahead I, I just love that little technical aspect too right before she they all get into the place where she drills the hole through the the floor and then puts this tiny little camera to get every single person more camera and surveillance right but yeah yeah, but yeah. Uh, whatever you're gonna say Emmett. all i was gonna say in terms of like yeah how the blood mist looks that's one of those moments like you said earlier that it looks like it's on another planet it's it's silly to say mm-hmm. but it, it, this movie feels almost like sci-fi sometimes black hat obviously much more so but just the way yeah. the way that the textures are so alien and weird, it's like it's like it's you've, like you've literally never seen planet. something that looks like this, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's one lonely planet. <laughs> it seems exactly. Like. But, but but you also Earth know too. that it's just like that. It's just it's it is real. Like this is what it would look like. But it's just it's rendered in this way that's just yeah, just like still completely unreal and dreamy. In it's the also way hard that it's to done. imagine people just being so fucking unbelievably cold and calculated when it comes to lives and and all of that like it's i think just watching some of these people deliver some of these really horrifying lines but with no emotion there's something surreal about that in itself too they've just gone so down Mm -hmm. the rabbit hole it's just such a dark life to live 
Yeah, well, and I mean, I, I think about the detail all the time, too, of like just how like this, the, like they, they save her and, you know, they they take that guy down and it's very casual in that kind of way. But then like that moment is not over. Like she is like sitting in like complete hysteria. She is like shaking uncontrollably. And, you know, obviously Jamie Foxx is completely tormented by the destruction that he has just brought on her in his own way. And she barely gets out of that trailer park before you know Yero decides well they haven't done it yet so i'm gonna press the trigger and he explodes it and he, he collapses her lung he i think they say he, they burn 15 percent of her body and put her in a coma and that detail yeah. of rico picking her up off the ground and she's still fucking smoking that is one of the yeah. best shots the, in the movie from it's so incredible yeah, like from the explosion that hit her it's it's insane like and and again it, it feels like a huge melodramatic romantic moment but just grounded in a very specific modern texture of like this woman was just nearly blown up <laughs> yeah it's got the modern aspect of like this is basically a drone strike for him like he's got this distant yes. technology that he's mm-hmm. not present for and doesn't have to see the consequences and he just has little his little panopticon of cameras but then we yeah. get this this extremely visceral violent imagery yeah the smoke coming off her it's again it's that that looks like you're hallucinating that looks like something that wait what yeah that, i must have seen the shot wrong but it's just it's incredible yeah. it also takes out like every like we were talking about how it's just such a great lead up with all these technical aspects they're choking people out they're to you know using uh, drills to put in cameras to see their location and all of that and then just in that moment you realize like they had no control whatsoever like it didn't matter that the mm-hmm. white supremacist guy was holding the the detonator like because jose is watching the entire time so it, yeah there, there's it really a whole network of inhumanity too. here at yeah. work Work, All right? their good work has just been completely destroyed right in that moment. And it was set up to fail really from the beginning in a way. So, yeah, it's just it's a constant disappointment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then it leads into the second action sequence, which is a repeat of the sort of like deal meetup shootout that we saw at the beginning, which, again, we already framed as completely horrifying because he clues you, which is which, is, again, is, is what heightens the um the the danger of it when you see it the second time and the tension of it, because you're waiting for that to happen again. You know that there are like two Barrett 50 cal snipers out there ready to just tear anything and anyone limb from limb and like not even just the fucking the bodies like the cars just seeing the destruction it does to the to the metal and you're like how is that possible that something can do something like that to to just another object and Mm -hmm. you get to see um yero who has taken isabella hostage and has basically claimed her as as his own and he is setting up a meet with sunny and rico who are obviously planning to have to strike back and organize this deal with him, but they only organize it if he shows up in person, which is another great detail that he actually does um, in black hat as well, Mm. which I know there's people who aren't crazy about that one, but I think regardless, most people should be attuned to like the finale of that. When that movie opens on like how much destruction you can do with the press of a button and how distanced we are from each other in a way and how that, you know, and then how that and that movie ends up in like just a super nasty prison shank, like literally a super nasty prison shank sequence. Yeah. Like he's doing the same thing. Like he's bringing this impersonal network of, you know, just action and reaction and flow of money and violence. And he's like, no, no, this is going to be a face to face meet. You need to fucking be there. And 
at that moment, they realize that everything is kind of on the line. Like their their sort of fabricated identities are basically collapsing. They ha- they have to reveal who they are at this point. They need to start acting, you know, with the FBI and taking everyone down and finishing this. But at the same time, he hasn't really had a moment of closure with Isabella and he wants to get out of there with her. And Jamie Foxx gets this great another great line. He delivers the lines really well, actually, all of them, because they're not the easiest things to deliver. <laughs> yeah. Like They're very macho and they're very simple and curt and coded in a way that they only mean something if you're buying into the sensory experience, which is why I do kind of understand if like if it doesn't work for you. Some of these lines can be hard to buy, but like something like this is just hugely impactful when I hear it, when it's like fabricated identity identity and what's really up are like about to collapse into one frame. Mm -hmm. Are you ready for that on this one? And the way that he just says, I absolutely am not. (laughs) (laughs) She may be a white collar money manager. She may even be true love, but she's with them. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. And uh, and then he just he all he has to say is I ain't playing as Trudy would you say know, this is this is real. There's something here, uh, you know, we and it's about to get mixed up in the craziest thing. Like he, he's basically like, admitting I'm about to I'm about to have the same emotions that you just had. Yeah. Where she's going to be in danger and I need to get her out. And, you know, and I, like and I like that he okay. also uh, like in order to kind of really show what he show Rico what he means he says like Trudy would say I ain't playing so it's kind mm-hmm. of like he's yes he's bringing that to the table so that that he can really understand where he's coming from and, and just be like it's like the way you feel about Trudy it's like that like that's what I'm experiencing even if it's completely stupid <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and like and, and it's so fast and you might not like believe it, but like that is the depth of our feeling. And we've yeah. seen that. Right. So like that's just it is like we we know that he's telling the truth and we know that, you know, the sequence we're about to watch is going to be infused with that tension. And now the only thing here, um, which for anyone who, again, sort of directors versus theatrical, this is the only other thing in the film where I have to recommend the theatrical over everything else. OK, because the the, the opening cold open uh, like stuff and the in media res smash cut stuff is obviously to me it's essential because it yeah especially with how the movie ends it opens yes. with them at work it ends with them going back to work like it to me there's a there's a consistency there and a sort of poetry there yeah um but this uh section in the director's cut i don't know what his thinking behind it was actually maybe i do maybe I, he wanted it to be another sort of music video type thing it's the only thing he does that's like the original show okay and he plays the uh non-point butt rock cover of in the air tonight (laughs) over this really over the beginnings of this this tense meetup and this shootout that's about to play and for me it's just really inelegantly kind of thrown in there okay but if you do the theatrical it's really quiet really tense moment really amazing and to me it's the the preferred way to experience this scene because like this scene when it's all just sound design and silence and gunfire and you get like the textures of the rusty shipyard and the abandoned like cargo boats littered everywhere and the sniper vision and like the heat vision screens that they're using and everything like just having the hyper real, uh, you know, aspect of it and just laying that on the line. And then p- trying to populate it with these character expressions, I think, is the way to go there. I don't think he needed music to convey I, the emotion yeah. that they were going for um, in this. Because, yeah, when this scene fucking explodes, oh, it's it just one of the most incredible handheld shot gunfight sequences that you've just ever seen. It's like the POV over the shoulder in a good way. stuff. 
down the barrel is nuts and you can actually see it a little bit in the um there's another behind the scenes where they show you some of the uh the undercover gun range training that they did where they were practicing how to shoot because they were like look we're gonna have you all on camera all moving forward and we don't like want you actually cross-firing and shooting each other (laughs) um but we want to be able to get these incredible tracking shots of like where the lens is practically like in the magazine of your gun while you're shooting it for real and that's what they do in this. And they take it to some crazy extremes where you get man's like photojournalistic background a little bit where like that image where the blood gets on the lens and he's still operating the camera, like raw war zone photography. He holds this like bloody lensed, like abstracted shot with like muzzle flares. So overexposed that they blind you and so loud that you can't even tell what's happening sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And, it becomes disorienting in a sense, like not, not in this, this way that I find frustrating, but just like, it, it just feels like bodies shooting at each other at a certain point. Like I lose track of yeah. faces besides maybe uh Sonny and Isabella. Um, but yeah. because they have a very focused scene within that as well, where, you know, she finally realizes that he's a cop and, and all of that, but he's still trying to save her life. Um, but but amongst yeah. the the chaos, all you really just see is is bodies and bullets. <laughs> so, yeah, huge squibs, body parts flying. There's a little bit of goop and chest and back <laughs> explosions <laughs> happening. And like again, like the uh, the the super realistic, but to the point of like an uncanny degree, digital photography just has like it's art imitating like real life, but then turning it into like this real life painting of like blood and muzzle flares and smoke and dirt. Like you can hardly, it's not like it's not trying to be a normal thrilling geographical logistical action scene. It is meant to be like this just complete expression of destruction and and pain and ugliness and it Mm -hmm. and there is one cathartic kill in it which is yarrow's of course because yarrow is just being absolutely monstrous you were saying it's like but it is on the wall you know (laughs) and and there's a little poetry there too because obviously (laughs) yes and and when when they first meet him he's just like they're gonna ask well what kind of person was like jose yarrow and he's like oh what's this on the wall who painted that Jackson Pollock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's going to be like, no, that's Jose Yero. He got himself sprayed all over his own wall being a fucking dumbass or whatever. <laughs> and the prophecy came and, true. That's right. Yes. And he straight up does that. And yeah, just the shot of the, the, the art on the like rusty steel behind him and everything and the blood hitting it and him just like flying. Oh, it's so fucking good. As, yeah. As you were saying. And then. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. As you're saying, it's just so different from I was just comparing this to like the the big fight in heat when they're on the street and you're like, you're always aware of where everyone is and who's Mm -hmm. who's going to make the move where here's Val Kilmer and here's Al Pacino and here's here's Ted Levine. And it's just so, so different from that when you when you're barely keeping up. And like you said, it feels much more like a war movie. And the setting is like it's not even they're not even around other people. And it's just like they're just in this ruined space that's going to be ruined no matter what they do here. Yeah, 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 definitely. And the focus on on the death itself, like when the, uh, for instance, when the Nazi guy gets capped as well, and it's just yeah. those two bullet holes in his bald head, like it's just unbelievably and the mist, cold. Fuck. Yeah, it's and crazy. the way he shoots out his fucking leg too, yeah, yeah. so like, humiliating. Oh my god, <laughs> it's it's unbelievably visceral. Like just yeah, the the, the close up and the detail. 
and 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 it's happening at the emotional climax too right because that this is where like sunny is calling in all of the backup and he's you know he's got the walkie out and everything and he's calling them in and all of a sudden isabella is figuring out that her entire enterprise has been demolished by her vouching for this person that she was interested in yep and, you know, finding out that he was exactly what Yarrow believed. Now, Yarrow didn't believe it for good intentions. He believed it, you know, because he was just kind of a dick and he was jealous. Like, that's yeah. why all of this happens. He wasn't actually. He comes out with her like he's saying unbelievably disgusting shit. Like, he's just going to use yeah, he's her and monstrous. then put her into pieces. And when he's done with her. Yeah, and I'm going to take her for a movie yeah. and get a bite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's. And then and when I get tired of her, I throw her away. Yeah, it's it's so cruel. And he's obviously and you that know, threat too, where he's like, "I'll throw her away, sunny. leg in one place, head in the other." Yeah, yeah. Ugh. Reminds me of uh, the the counselor, the counselor. <laughs> yeah. Hell yes. Another late late masterpiece by the feature. god Ridley. Yes, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I love I love that as as great as great it is to see Jose go down because he's become that mustache twirling villain at the end. There, it's also so melancholy because he's just a middle manager and it doesn't yeah. really yes. matter and. Yep. And when they try to find Montoya, he's just gone. Like he was never there. And if they got yep. him, someone would replace him too. And so the climax yep. just becomes the her her yelling at Sonny and asking who he is. And like that that's the takeaway from all of yeah, this. Yeah, dude, her expression on her face while she's screaming, Who are you? and trying to like beat the shit out of him During and like trying to fight, pull the gun. Yeah, like yeah. like the bullets are still flying at them, but she's just so like you, you know, just the she emotions are brought yeah, they're brought so much to the surface that she's like, I'd Well she gets die. the Don Johnson moment, right? Like she gets the moment where she's like, mm-hmm. I have been completely betrayed. I thought yeah. I was having real feelings yep. and I had a real human connection and she, in ways she did. But it's like, you know, like that was completely under threat. And she thinks that that was completely fake. Like it's the exact moment that Don Johnson has with his with his colleague when he finds out that he's the leak. Yeah. And he's just like he she literally doubts all of the relationships that she's had until that point, which is obviously when that's the only thing you have. And your whole world is literally crumbling and being ripped bit by bit in front of your eyes. It's like and that's all you've got left is this thing that, you know, you're being told is could have been fake. You know, you totally get her existential crisis and why she wouldn't give a shit that she's about to get shot. She's like, what's what's happening? And then, yeah, he he takes that Nazi down while they're literally like embracing each other and like uh, having uh, this, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, like for him to pull that mooper, he shoots off. his feet out and headshots him while, you know, tackling her to the ground like simultaneously um, is pretty incredible and clumsy moment too is the thing like that's not a cool action it is in some ways but it just it doesn't like look as strategic like it looks messy and it looks you know like like real real human beings flopping around in a way yeah yeah. um which really sets up the you know the big finale which is rico goes back to trudy who's in the hospital he's waiting for her to wake up because she's in a coma she doesn't he doesn't know if he's just completely destroyed this thing that he loved he has, you know, he's waiting to find that news out. And Sonny takes uh, Isabella completely against her will to a safe house where she is going to get safe transport to Cuba. And he tells her, no one will follow you, including me. Just go back home, cash yeah. out, do whatever it is that you're going to do. And uh, 
this embrace that they have and these glances that they give to each other. This is the stuff that reminds me the most of like Wong Kar Wai stuff where it's like two yeah. characters in a movie have never looked so longingly at each other as like they do in a Wong Kar Wai film, but like without having to touch each other almost. Yeah. And you absolutely get that sensibility of these two being like very clearly they had a real thing. You know, they they had this fleeting human connection that they wish that they could pursue in a way, but they didn't change anything. The world is exactly the way that it was when they started. And yeah. uh, I think he says uh, the luck ran out, referring to the time is luck uh, yeah. bit. And whatever this thing that we had, it was it was too good to last. That in one, this, you know, that sort one's of the crushing modern one for me. world. Yep. Yeah, because like, it's it's as if he, you know, he no he, hope. Yeah, even he, that, like he's you like, know, why would something in this world be so good? Obviously, this couldn't just be something we could hold on to. It's like I, I did. It's almost like he didn't even truly believe in it from the beginning, but he just had to pursue to see if if it could be that if it could be so good and he could hold on to it um yeah and it's just it's so sad it's unbelievably <laughs> devastating yeah there's that uh <laughs> yeah that line in in the mood for love by Wong Kar Wai after the the romance that didn't quite happen has long passed by and the main character totally young comes back to the apartment building he just looks at the house apartment where she used to live and the inner title flashes on screen that era has passed nothing that belonged to it exists anymore I'm like, that's, that's, yeah. yeah. Or you mentioned Terrence Malick, uh, also Colin Farrell, right around the same time. And New World. Exactly. Yeah. The New incredible World. Film. Oh, incredible film. Yeah. Absolutely incredible film. And um, there's the bit near the end of that when he, as John Smith, reunites with Pocahontas. And he had left her behind to keep exploring. And she asks him, Did you find your indies, John? And he says, I think I may have sailed right past them. And that's basically also Colin Farrell at the end of this one. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Then, yeah, like they like they, you know, they, they they are no longer the performative people. The jobs kind of require them to be to excel at this underworld of obviously just destructive and fabricated living. It's their real. And now moment. they're just two people holding on to each other and looking at each other and wondering, you know, what what could have been in a world that wasn't didn't operate like this, that didn't, yeah. you know, that didn't need people to you know, uh, go into this system and figure out what's wrong with it. And the tragic weight of all of it is just so felt in the way that they look at each other and the way the wind is blowing through their hair. That, and like the, authentic just, storm that's kind of coming into in the background. Yeah. The Miami weather is just incredibly yeah. cinematic as a yeah. thing. And they just, they, they had the perfect cameras to again, be improvised and be able to capture it in the moment. Like a lot of this weather is just real. Like we did, we mentioned it a little bit, but like the ways that he catches like lightning oh, and thunder. So, in yeah, just like moments in this film it's insane and like again it's only there because he could shoot on the fly all the time with you know cameras in deep focus ready to capture it yeah and like that's where you get these and, and, and again that is the film formally capturing the sensibility of you know the emotions which is you know capturing these ethereal moments that only exist for a split second and you hold on to them for a split second and they're gone just and that's the same thing with the lightning. It's the same thing with the storms. It's yeah, it's everything. And then you, it's yeah. life. Exactly. And even, <laughs> and even the way he's like, uh, as he gets out of his car and goes into the hospital before it cuts away completely. Um, there, there is a, at least a sense of slight optimism knowing that Trudy is responding and coming back and he'll be able to see that. Mm -hmm. But it does feel as if like he's got that walk back again, right? It's like that, That's that exactly strut, it. the shoulders are moving and he's just back to work. Uh, and, and you know, whatever happens, he'll, he'll deal with it and keep moving forward. He, he he's a man that 
doesn't seem to look back. And I guess the only time he did was with Isabella when she's leaving on the boat. Um, it's like the only time that he has a moment of just thought, really, instead of yeah. impulse. Um, so, yeah. I love that last yeah, shot. Her, him, him having to put her on the boat and yeah. then yeah. walk back into the hospital. And yeah, just ending on that that shot where it's just, yeah, it, you feel like this movie doesn't ever actually begin or end. It's just, it feels like a day in the life. Right, <laughs> yeah, a moment <laughs> in walking, these people's lives, yeah. He could be walking back into the club right there and the whole thing would would, would start right all over yep. again. and it would just start again. <laughs> yeah. <Yep. laughs> and I, I, love, I love the contrast that, yeah, that, that Trudy's stirring and that her and Rico will have a future together, but then, yes, Sonny, and I love that the movie cuts to black right as he passes other cops in the entranceway and you're seeing him yeah. from behind, yeah. but you can just imagine that's the moment when he sniffles the last tears back up and he gets the hard <laughs> brow again and he sets his jaw yeah. and that person he was briefly is gone maybe forever. And you don't see it yeah. happen because it's yeah. from behind at a distance, but that's it. That's the last moment he was that guy. And so the movie has to be over. Yeah. He just says like a little sniff and he's like, it's truly yeah. okay. All right. Exactly. Great. That's it. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. And and I, I do know that this wasn't man's original ending for the film. Right. And it was it was right. for the reasons that Jamie kind of alluded to earlier, where right. Jamie Foxx apparently after winning his Oscar that he won for Ray, I believe, he did get apparently a little bit diva mode. <laughs> and uh he was demanding, you know, like more money than Colin Farrell, and he was demanding like private jets from the studio to fly him to other locations. And there was a moment, I think, when they were shooting in the Dominican Republic where uh, they could hear gunfire from near one of the locations that they were shooting at. Mm -hmm. And it spooked him enough that he basically was like he flew home and refused to shoot in any uh, of the sort of like foreign locations for the rest of the shoot. So man yeah. had to apparently take he had this sort of planned ending in Paraguay, which nobody knows what it's supposed to look like um, until I'll, I'll bring that up at the end here. But uh, no one knows exactly what it was supposed to be. But he did go. This ending was one that he originally wrote and scrapped for the Paraguay one. So this ending was something he thought through. It wasn't just like he had to make it up on the fly. Still really works um, well. I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. And, and, and he has said that it's come to be his preferred ending for this film. Oh, nice. And that he he he, he does. He Shooting so it, thanks he came for being to a realize Fox, I guess. Yes, <laughs> yes. You inadvertently, but also saved for it. for anyone interested, <laughs> part of the reason we're doing this episode is that um, Heat on 4K and Heat Two, the book that Man just released, uh, should have just came out um, uh, sometime during this week. So uh, supposedly, according to interviews with Man, uh, Heat Two. Uh, now has all of the stuff that was supposed to be the Paraguay ending of Miami Vice. Oh. So he has incorporated it into, I don't know if it's like going to be the ending of heat two, or if he just has like a sequence in the book somewhere that, you know, he kind of reused that was meant to be what he was going to do. Uh, we'll have to find out. We'll have to scope through it. If any time, if anyone gets to the scene in heat two that takes place in Paraguay, um, that supposedly was supposed to be the original ending of Miami Vice. So now we will kind of have some idea of what that could have looked like. But for now I will say I fucking love this climax and this ending and this final shot, I think it works poetically with the the smash cut opening and it totally lands every emotional and ethereal beat it's trying to get you to feel. And yeah, I completely agree with man that this ending works great. And yeah, yeah. I, I could totally, you know, I, I, I have no issue, you know, with the fact that, you know, there was a little bit of production trouble that maybe led to it. Um, it's just awesome. 
Yep. But uh, yeah, we should wrap it up. We've gone crazy here. Uh, <laughs> that was Miami Vice. Um, we should pivot towards the reductive rating around here, which I, it, it, based on the link, that probably should be obvious. This is the super easy five for me. This is nice. a, uh, you know, a, a all timer, literally for me, one of the greatest films, if not the greatest film. I've watched this film like five or six times. I never get tired of. I always find new images and colors that I hadn't previously seen in it because it's so dense and little editing tricks uh, that it has, like just everything about the way that, you know, the, the, the shock edits, the audio cutting out the, you know, the production design of the rusty shipping barges and imposing underpasses lit with the real street lamps, the, the smearing smog neon skies. Uh, I mean, I think about that bit, uh, especially like the crazy purple one, when uh, Colin Farrell is like closing that trunk and yeah. he's getting the call from Yarrow and it starts in like this sort of like medium wide of him in a tracking shot where you think he's just meaning business and it slowly slowly gets closer to his face like completely framed against the sky and everything is in focus in a way that is just you know really moody and really imposing and then you just throw in all the 2000 stuff the music the cell phones the huge brick cell phones the insanely modern tactical destructive gunplay and violence and the blurry screens and surveillance footage uh, like it's just it is a in terms of visual density and the way that this film looks and the way it uses architecture and light and space and sound and an, an insanely experimental and radical film on a budget unheard of for something to look like this. More movies should look like this. Everything would look like this if it was up to me. And it totally can't. The, the hyper real thing that it captures really does lend itself to this like form, this new form of like waking, refracted, dreamlike pixel reality i don't even know how to describe it and it but it, it totally serves man's central idea of this film and of the original miami vice show which was getting high off the idea of feeling like you're in an alternate plane of reality because you are an undercover operator because you don't know who you are you don't know which way is up you don't know if what you're feeling is real but it's a but regardless it's a real sensory experience you know, something is happening to your body. Something is happening to you psychologically and emotionally. You don't know necessarily if it makes complete sense. It, you could be confused. It could be destructive, you know. But regardless, he completely nails every expressive, tragic, operatic quality. And I absolutely, you know, um, feel this movie about identities and worlds that are constantly changing and the only thing you can rely on is like holding on to another person for a few seconds before you know maybe you're ripped to shreds by a bear at 50 caliber in extremely gruesome detail i can't tell you if that's your future or not <laughs> yeah. um but it could be um and and also over a stupid petty slight or like a mistake you know yeah. like it's such a cruel movie in that kind of way mm -hmm. but again also deeply deeply um romantic um and it is it is just insane that this was reviled upon release. And I think a lot of that just boils down to it was too stylistically ahead of its time. And um, I think if you previously dismissed it because of the way that it looks or some of the cheesy lines, I would, you know, highly recommend just going back to it and giving it another shot and giving it a shot in the context that Emmett was talking about in yeah. this idea of look at it as a romance film that, you know, smuggled in some action stuff. And uh, and some really intensely 
gorgeous and disturbing action stuff at that. But, you know, just keep in mind, it's not going to, you know, you're not going to get a 30 minute long, amazingly cathartic logistical action scene. <laughs> yeah. But yes, five. Sorry, I went on long. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to get there one day. I'm just not quite there. I don't know what it is. It, it might be just the, um, I, I do kind of wish that as the, the two romantic affairs that are happening are coming together in the images. I felt Jamie Foxx's a little more. I just feel like his character is mm. quite undercooked compared to Sonny. Um, I love Sonny. I think Colin Farrell's performance is just unfucking believable. And uh, I, I, I love his commitment to it. I love his little eye twitches, his his shoulder movements, his, his like kind of pumping up the chest when he's trying to act more macho and deepening his voice. You can actually hear him deepening in it throughout the film. Um, I think the the direction and the digital photography c- captures such a, a realistic sense of what they have to go through every single day and night. Um, I, I do. I truly do love this film. I just think I, I need another shot with it. So r- right now it's the the Jamie four. Um, but I think that I, it's unbelievable that this thing was was panned and, and has had the reputation that I knew of it for so long, because as soon as Josh showed it to me, I, it was one of those like uh, just shocking moments being like, this is a fantastic film. So I don't I don't know what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Four out of five for now, but this—I almost guarantee that this will grow on me. I can't stop thinking about Sonny's entire plot and character. I just—I love the portrayal here. Yeah, go for it. Definitely give the director's cut a shot because when you do it, I think that the one issue you'll have. Well, the the one thing with Jamie Foxx is like that's the main thing that it fixes. Like yeah. it puts in all the stuff back between Trudy and Rico that make you feel the dual relationship a little bit more. And personally, I do think it was a mistake that, to cut it from the theatrical. Like I yeah. wish that there was a cut that kept the theatrical opening and dropped the uh, in the air tonight cover over <laughs> yeah. the the shootout, but left in all of the stuff with Rico and Trudy. If that if someone fan edited that, I think that would be the one that Jamie would be like, yep. Yeah, Insta yeah. five. <laughs> Insta, yeah, for sure. And and also just the one last thing was um I liked that in the theatrical cut we have a cold open just like you do with the show when uh we're introduced to Rico and yeah, his car. Cool. So I like that kind of uh you know, a callback, I guess, if he was doing that. So yeah. Hell yeah. For you, Emmett. Yeah, five for me. I would give it a six if I could. This is uh yeah. it's one of my favorites. I don't know if there's an American movie since this I've loved quite as much. And it's it's a lot of it is yeah, it's just the romance and just the every shot sticks out in memory and it's just thinking of man's career as a whole and coming back uh on heat two week it's uh it's just it's really impressive to evolve in a way because this movie is such a risk and at every level the amount of money being spent and the style and coming back to his old his roots and it, it makes me think of the uh there's the jazz club scene in collateral when they're they're playing a spanish key by miles davis and that was, you know, Miles oh, yeah. Davis. Miles Davis had made Kind of Blue and was very kind of dapper and old school jazz through the 50s and early 60s. And then the late 60s, he started taking a lot of drugs and hanging out with people who were showing him Jimi Hendrix and Sly Stone. And he started doing the, the, the kind of the fusion era when he was more influenced by rock and roll. And he made the album Bitches Brew that that song Spanish Key is on. And for me, like, that's what this era is for Michael Mann. Like, he had so conquered the more kind of painterly novelistic approach that you were talking about with the movie like heat. And he was like, what's, what's, what's the next horizon? What's the next stage? I'm, I, I got to do what I've done, but differently. And I, I, I find it hard to 
There's only a handful of artists like Miles Davis or Picasso or something ambitious like that when in terms of making this pivot so well to a new part of his career. It's really it's impressive. It's really inspiring. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. And, and it is it's it's moving that he's still getting the chance to, you know, <laughs> do some of this stuff, because like, obviously, this was rejected on some level. Public Enemies rejected. Black Hat was hugely rejected, a huge bomb for Universal. Everybody hated it. Black Hat, but he's, you know, he's not stopping. Ferrari is shooting right now and it is on digital. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to see whatever he figures out. Like, imagine what he's going to do with like car engines. Oh, yeah. Like, I just I can't even imagine what kind of poetry he's going to get merging the digital machinery, technology, hyper real stuff and trying to merge it into, you know, uh, stuff like from Grand Prix where you get those bodies inside the machines operating at insane levels of speed, which practically you get in this film without even having them to need to be racing. Their entire existence is a a fucking dangerous, ugly, lethal (laughs) race that they need to suppress themselves from. And yeah, yeah, just uh, can't wait to see it. And uh, yeah, everybody should uh, should go out and check out Miami Vice. I assume most people have the the sort of critical consensus around it has uh, turned a lot in the uh, last uh, decade and a half, cl- cl- coming close to two decades now. So, and I assume it will only it will only grow from there. So, yeah, definitely. But yes, that was uh, Miami Vice from 1984 and Miami Vice from. 2006 thanks so much for uh sticking around i know this was a long one thanks so much emmett yeah thanks uh emmett for Mm -hmm. for coming on and talking talking uh through these ones with us um if you've got anything to plug while you're here emmett uh what uh what's going on in your world right now well my pleasure thanks again for having me on i had a blast i uh was really looking forward to it especially on on heat two week as everyone yes i mean yeah i can't wait to read everyone on the internet never stops talking about michael mann but especially now so perfect timing (laughs) Um, yeah. So that's just what the world needed. Three guys on a podcast talking about Michael Mann for three exactly. hours. <laughs> the world, we're the, we're the, it's what the world, the world was really welcome. welcome. Exactly. Yeah. We're changing <laughs> things. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, uh, I go by poor Quentin at poor Quentin on Twitter. And my podcast is the not a cast podcast. We, we go through a, a song of ice and fire, the book series that became game of Thrones. We go through that chapter by chapter. We were on hiatus for a bit and I was doing some episodes on my own about Lord of the Rings and star Wars, which I'm going to keep doing for a monthly basis for uh, our patrons over on Patreon. But we're getting back into a song of ice and fire. Now we're in storm of swords, the third book. So we're coming up on great stuff like uh, Jamie Lannister confessing his sins in the bathtub to Brienne and saving her from the bear. That's my it's my favorite favorite book. I got to say of Swords of, rules of the, of the bunch. Yes. And they, uh, <laughs> there's the Beric Dondarrion with his fire sword, that guy, him fighting the hound. We got the intro of Oberyn Martell, Pedro Pascal's character from the show. And then after all that, we got the Red Wedding coming up before too long. My favorite thing in all of stories. Sweet. So, uh, yeah, so we're not a cast, asoiif.podbean.com, but you can also find us on Spotify, on iTunes, on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and then patreon.com slash not a cast, asoiif is where our patrons can get uh, early access to stuff and our exclusive episodes and a bunch more benefits. And yeah, like I said, you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. 
Awesome. Yeah, definitely go and check that out. For our listeners, we are going to be back in one week's time, whereas Jamie alluded to at the top of the show, we are going to be talking about uh, artists as serial killers. But the early days, because we've talked about this before in films like uh, The Driller Killer, films like Peeping Tom. Uh, But we are going to be going even to even earlier examples than that. And we are going to be talking about uh, one Hangover Square which is, is, is it 1945, 1948? One of those two. Uh, which is a really, a really underrated um, sort of expressionist noir film about a classical pianist who basically goes peeping Tom mode and starts losing his mind and starts killing people. And we're going to be pairing it with a little bit more of a, uh, you know, a sort of satirical update on the kind of genre. A Roger Corman film, an early Roger Corman film starring Dick Miller uh, called A Bucket of Blood from 1959 which has a really hilarious premise of dick miller is just like a, like a young impressionable guy who accidentally kills his landlady's uh, pet <laughs> and then to cover it up he puts a bunch of clay around it and turns it into a statue and Classic everyone goes move. wow that's the most that's the most authentic looking cat sculpture i've ever seen so then <laughs> in order to pursue his career of artistry he needs to keep killing more people to put more clay moldings around them and keep <laughs> making amazing looking art. You got to express so, yourself. Exactly. So we're going to be talking about, again, artists as murderers. That is next week over on uh, patreon.com slash podcast. And then in two weeks time, we are going to be back with a very special guest where we are going to be talking about two films I haven't seen. We're going to be talking about one, a film called The Wrong Guy from, I think, 1997. And then a one mute witness from 1995 and i don't know anything about these films which is always a wonderful place to uh start from but our guest has assured us that they are going to be fun and uh i i have a feeling that they might have possibly even been stuff that uh, he programmed at his film festival not to spoil who our guest is going to be um so uh that's what you guys can expect in uh two weeks time we're going horror mode for the next uh two weeks here um but yeah That being said, thanks so much for listening and keep us easy. Keep us easy.